Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe. This is going to be episode 209 with designer Mike Hill. Designer and also lecturer and just an all-around awesome dude. He's been doing a lot of things since the last time we spoke with him. If you can recall, we did an episode live together at Industry Workshops back in London a couple years back. And I've been watching Mike from afar and just seeing his evolution. And he's been killing it. He's been working on Dune and Blade Runner um, he's been working closely with Tim Miller and Fincher and at, at um, Blur and just doing a lot of awesome stuff. And he's just one of those guys that you see just has an immense curiosity about the the enigma of filmmaking and the essence of telling stories. And if you haven't done yourself, um, if you haven't done uh, checked out any of his lectures, p- please do so because they're just awesome. And it'll give you a lot of context to the conversations that we're about to have here in this uh, episode. Um, there is just so much to cover in this episode. We have a nice long one. Usually I try to cap these episodes at about an hour, an hour and a half. We, we said we'd stop around an hour and a half. We ended up going two and a half hours. So for those of you that don't like the long episodes, we apologize. But at the same time, it's just when conversations flow, we go with it. And I was just very thankful. And I know that it's, um, hard to get with Mike because he's a busy guy and he's traveling all around the world. So, um, but here we are. So super excited. Um, there's so much to cover in this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Big thank yous to everybody, all the fans and everybody out there that's buying the merch from the store at thecollectedpodcast.com slash store and sending the pictures and tagging us on Instagram. Super cool. It's rad to see that. And if you do that, we'll send you a coupon for 10% off any other um, price or anything else that you buy on the store. So thanks for that. All that stuff just literally fuels any of the costs and operation stuff that we put into the episodes and stuff. So thank you guys so much. Appreciate that. Super cool. Um, Yes, episodes 209 with Mike Hill. Let's begin. I can't remember. We've It's been a while since we last spoke. The last time I think we spoke was together at a panel uh in germany right i think it was, was it no i think it was uh i think it was, L- it was L- london Sorry. yeah london in 20 2016 i think so it must be, it's nearly three years yes it was at industry workshops yes a lot's happened since then a lot of um i've been yeah. kind of following you vicariously from the sidelines um a lot of this happened in your life obviously a lot of changes a lot of growth a lot of stuff has um evolved in your own hero's journey we're going to talk a lot about that as well um, but yeah, so where are you at right now? You're not in this, you're like traveling abroad right now, right? Um, at this moment in time, I'm in Los Angeles, okay. uh, just, just briefly. Um, I'm attending a few events here, the CG, like a, a talk with the CGMA, like the CG Ma- I think Masters Academy. Okay. And then, uh, I'm also, um, going to be doing a, a quick talk tomorrow downtown at SIARC, which is a, uh, like a architectural school. Um, and a guy called Liam Young, who's a kind of architectural futurist. Yeah. He, uh, he, he got in contact with me actually years ago. Um, and then just by, by a synchronicity kind of thing, a few, a few things connected. And, um, and then, uh, he, he invited me out to come and give a quick, quick lecture. Um, so I'm going to do that tomorrow. So that's the primary reason. And then it's always good. I lived in LA last year, so it's nice just to come and catch up with people and kind of, Today I went to visit Activision and uh, just do a few a few catch up meetings. Nice. And in fact, if, uh, I'm not sure if I can mention it, but I'll I'll probably mention it after the the fact. 
fact. But if I if I check on Monday, I've got a, a visit to to a non game, non film related um, kind of space, which I'm really really excited about. Oh, nice. uh, which I'll probably kind of mention once I've double checked with the, the people that I'm visiting that I can. Cool, SpaceX sounds great. <laughs> no, you didn't nice. say it so no. uh no that's awesome yeah that's really cool you've been traveling a lot too that's great yeah because you yeah. were working with activision crew for a while now and so yeah and la is kind of a hub for a lot of these things you get asked yeah. to travel a lot to go and do a lot of speaking events huh yeah that's that's kind of ramped up the last only the last really the last 12 months has that kind of ramped up or no even the last six months um and Primarily is because I'm I'm not very good at accepting invitations for that kind of thing. Um, I tend to, to put put that kind of stuff off unless I kind of feel like I have something to say. Um, and now I'm kind of just trying to be a bit more relaxed about just going with the flow. So if if I get an invitation now, I kind of I I, I just try my best to to accept it regardless. You know, mm. um, just because things interesting things happen. You know, when you accept when you accept uh adventures adventures yeah yeah Yeah. exactly yeah because public public speaking i'm sure for you and most anybody um that has consciousness and stuff is is very daunting and challenging and very taxing emotionally um yeah the more you do it the better it's one of those things it's like the the like uh, something i refer to all the time which is like um the conan wheel of pain you know it's like you just go through that wheel of pain you know because <laughs> yeah. uh, i remember the first yeah. talk i did i was like petrified and i was really just not happy that i was doing this thing um, yeah you yeah, get to a yeah. point where you're just having fun you know you're just like oh and you're and you're you realize that you're there to entertain and, and educate and exchange ideas which is great so yeah i think it's uh it's it's i i'm i've I've always kind of been okay in some respects. I think I prefer talking to, to groups than I do individuals in some respect. I don't know why that is. Mm. Um, but the, mainly the, the, the nervousness comes from um, whether you believe that what you're saying is, is worth a group of people's time, you know? So it's, it's, it's more about the confidence in the content. But the last kind of year or so, I've kind of begun to give up the the illusion of control a little bit and even even with less planned talks um yeah you start to grow like you say you, you grow in confidence that that you do you know what you're talking about and you you know people are there to listen and learn and, and you actually have something to, to offer even if you're not fully fully planned <laughs> it's good um, to have that pressure though you know i think that's what yeah, makes it yeah, good yeah. you know definitely definitely because if you don't have that pressure then you're just going to be kind of like um complacent about it and you're not going to really display it's one of my pet peeves when i do talks when i um i mean whatever i I offend people it doesn't matter but like when people they'll go up there and they'll just do like a presentation their website yeah uh, you know like what are you offering to people they're here to be i guess i don't know maybe there's a point to that that works too and some people like that you know that no i think i think you're right because i have i think it's also a byproduct of if you've given talks and you've and you've cared about the content when someone doesn't seem to, to offer that same level of contribution, it, yeah. it can actually be a little bit like, Hey, come on, man, like put, put the effort in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I had that recently actually with, I won't mention who, and it's not even somebody from our industry, but I went to an event and there was a kind of quote unquote legend from the industry. Yeah. Um, older, older guy must Dangerous. be in his, must be in his sixties or something. And, uh, and he rocked up and he just, like he clearly couldn't give a shit like he in a kind of nonchalant 
uh, kind of way. He was kind of, it, it almost got to a point where the audience was all like, we're kind of looking sideways at each other with that, like, wow, this is self-indulgent, you know, yeah. like, like <laughs> to a point where the curator was actually asking the guy to get off stage and he was like, no, 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 just give me a few more minutes, you know, and, wow. like, and, he, and he was stacking up the people behind him wow. in the schedule. And I was like, dude, this is, this is really like, and it was, yeah, it was very strange, but yeah. I guess, I guess if you, if you, <laughs> if you get the feedback for so many years that you're a, you're a legend, then that's a bad like, thing. I guess you start to believe that whatever comes out of your mouth is, is legendary, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've experienced that exact thing. So a couple of times actually too. I actually, one of the time I had to go right after somebody and um, they took so long and people were like, what the heck? And so it was like, uh, it's almost like, because um, you're an entertainer at that point, you know? So I look at it and almost like, I like a lot of stand-up comedy. I watch a lot of comedians. So I was thinking of it almost like, damn, you know, like, you're messing up my crowd. Stop it. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same time, I'm like, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to make them super happy and thankful that they're here. And I want to give them everything that I can. Um, because yeah, it's super exactly. important, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But it's an entertaining thing. I, I really enjoy watching your talks. I love how meta you get into things. And um, I love that, like, so much of what we do, as you obviously know, because you're a designer and we work in the visual space, so much of what we do is just one part of the experience of idea and creation and getting these things across in a bigger formation, which is like a video game or a, a movie or something. So it's yeah. really cool and it's refreshing that other artists like yourself are really thinking about these things further. And, and, and I think it's a real important thing. And I think it's something that there's a big lack of, um, and just in, in the industry as a whole, um, openly talking about this kind of stuff you know why do you why is that you think and am, am i wrong for thinking that too um no no i, I agree um i think it's so as in why why so can you can you specify is like why there isn't this level of or this particular type of thinking going into the products or yeah i'm sorry my question was all over the place but mainly the question was if i was wrong in thinking that a lot of what we see in what we do as visuals, our creatives, um, is mostly visual based. And we don't think about, you know, like you said, you're a designer, you know, and so designing is like problem solving. That's always what it was for me. I don't see it yeah, anything yeah, else, yeah. you know? No, for sure. And I think, I think it comes down to, cause I think there's a, there's a big difference between a fundamental difference between artists and designers, uh, in the sense that art is about, a kind of it can be it, it should be at least initially an unreflective self-expression um because when you don't have a filter and you you express then interesting dynamic things happen um, and then later somebody can analyze it and see if there's patterns there that that could be called um kind of universal and at that point if if an artist comes up with something that eventually turns out to be a, a universal template for the you know the way things happen in the future, then then it becomes design. And the reason I say that is that uh, if if you make something and then the world looks at what you've done and says I don't get it, then as an artist you're absolutely entitled to say, well, that's your problem because <laughs> that's that's not why I did it. Yeah. But if you design something and the world says I don't get it, then you've not designed it correctly um which yeah. and, and and your answer should be ah i'm interested to know why you don't get it because then i can improve it so that you do get it because there's an intention behind this design and i think that when it comes to 
the sort of creative process, I personally am a top-down analyst, so I look for patterns in things and I'm analyzing and trying to get to like a goal. But a lot of artists don't want to be thinking in that way. They want to be shooting from the hip, you know, like they want to be just reacting in the moment to their gut. And there's a time and a place for both of those things. I think I think in commercial products in general, I think that the not only is it very rare to have an artist that can actually just shoot from the hip and actually do something that's really revelatory and, and shareable to a lot of people, but the chances that that person is going to be able to navigate through the commercial system with their vision intact is so unlikely that the actual commercial art, quote unquote, doesn't really get very far um, because it has to go through the filtering of like a studio system or a, or a committee decision making process or whatever. Okay. Um, and because of that, I kind of feel like the, the more pragmatic strategy that can be applied to like stories or film is, is the design approach, which is analyzing, explaining, and hopefully getting on board people that, that make the decisions that aren't necessarily creatives, you know? So if you can, yeah. If you can explain how something works and make a good case for it, um, even if that thing wasn't intended to do that by the creator himself or herself, if you can explain a pattern between different products and you can explain that, then then you can make a design case to repeat it or to make something, you know, make something else that does the same job. In a, in a I guess that's why I'm always ranting about Jurassic Park because it's. <laughs> Jurassic Park is the is the template that everyone believes they're they're copying from, but because there's no real objective basis for what is and is not relevant to the success of the original Jurassic Park, we end up getting very very um, unsavory unsavory results because people are copying the wrong stuff and not seeing the hidden architecture. You know. Yeah, it's the same thing with Star Wars or any of these things. Yes, any, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a and it's a real. Um, well, I think it's a. For me, at least, it was always this thing that, like, when I, I grew up, I, I grew up watching Star Wars. Star Wars was one of those big things that hit me at a young age that was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do for my life because it, and, and it hit me as a kid not knowing these bigger kind of ideas. These are like archetypes and things that you dive into further on. And when you talk, do you do your talks and stuff? But I didn't realize as an adult until I started reading Joseph Campbell's books and understand the psychology of things and why I felt the way I did, understand the mechanisms and basically deciphering the magic trick of why. Um, and it's so easy with Star Wars, for example, as a perfect example, um, is, is to go and like, oh, it's about lightsabers and like mm-hmm. the Millennium Falcon and stuff. And so when you watch the new movies, not all of them, I think Rogue One had some really good attributes to it. But like some, let's say Force Awakens, I'm just going to go ahead and slam it, but whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of problems with it because it broke away from a lot of what made those first films so, so great. And I think there's 10 mm. films out there. I only like three of them, but that's just my opinion. So people get mad at me if I have an opposing opinion of them and they think I'm like some kind of racist bigot or some kind of like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, they try to like, they try to escape there that that's like, Oh, you're, you're, you have this agenda. I'm like, no, oh, I just man. don't yeah. like it. It's, I don't like it because it's not telling a story as worthy of like my money and the whole crew and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I mean, I, I agree by the way. Um, and it's not because I'm, it's an inflammatory, Oh yeah. I just want to be a contrarian. To no, you're whatever too, you're too logical people. to just throw like your opinions out like that. I know. Yeah. That. So <laughs> yeah. I, I know I, that about you too. And I really, I try not to, like it's becoming more and more difficult to say anything, especially online, 
where people don't yeah yeah, yeah it's just, i just ignore them and they're just noise if they have an opinion and they want to just like throw it in your face it's like you're you're not going to get my vote if you're going to yell at me so yeah, like, yeah yeah and it's like i i don't know I, I i really try and put a lot of thought into things so when i say something i've really thought it through and then sometimes you get responses where you're just accused of being a fucking simple-minded idiot it's like <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. some, some care and effort has gone into this thought you know Just a but, little bit yeah but uh, but yeah it's, it's it's a tricky one with yeah with things like star wars for sure um and i don't want to turn this into a bashing star wars no, I, no, no, I love no, star wars no, no me too me too just to, to, to i guess my my perspective on it when it comes to star wars is that i can when I watch it, I intuitively feel that something is wrong because I'm not reacting to it the way that I would like to. Exactly. And then with some, and I, I haven't bothered to do this particularly because now I don't have a, a huge amount of faith or interest in uh, in these films just because <laughs> being aware of the way that they're made and the process that leads to their creation and the various political aspects and the studio aspects and, and what's actually happening behind the curtain. Yeah you know that it's not really possible to make a good film because it's too, it's too, di- it's too, uh, diluted, yeah. it's too diluted. There's too many, there's too many voices. There's too many irrelevant voices. There's too many people worried and scared of appeasing focus groups or marketing, but then testing for the wrong things in marketing. And so it's like, it, it would be miraculous if any of those films did come out really, really well. It's amazing uh, that they do come out actually at, at the rate that they do as well. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And to be honest, like I'm a, I'm a big skeptic, but I'll also change. For example, I, I, when I first saw the Mad Max Fury Road trailer, mm. you know, my, my initial response is, oh man, fuck this. Like it's just <laughs> going to be, it's going to be a two hour. Gratuitous, like, like it's circle be, jerk, yeah. Fast and the Furious or something. It's going to be meaningless. And, yeah. and it, wait, it actually, wait, hold on. You think Fast and Furious is meaningless? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a thousand percent on board with that one too. I don't know how people watch those things, but they love them and they go back and they love them. So. And I and I, I get that. And, different and strokes for different folks. It's yeah, fine. exactly. Like, and I'm certainly not gonna like if people enjoy them. Fair play. Yes, yes. What I like about, is good. Yeah. What I like about Fast and the Furious is that it doesn't claim to be anything other than Fast no, and the Furious. No, it's very self-aware. Just it's like very self, yeah, just like and, the, the good Marvel movies are so aware like the deadpool or like logan for example like yes, they're very self-aware yeah. and they're like look we know this is fucking stupid so let's yes. make fun of it and let's have fun yeah, yeah exactly and and that's 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 all you know different like you say different strokes different folks although i would argue um that if you go back to the original fast and the furious that was a solidly made solidly scripted film um it wasn't remember. a must you know it's not going to win any oscars but but it, it Probably like the equivalent of like a point break or something, right? Yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah, it had some it had some kind of integrity to it as a as an actual story <laughs> about characters. In I love that movie. Growing up as a kid, Point Break was like I was like, wow, cool, Keanu's cop, you know, like it was perfect because it. But I also loved American Pie and stuff. You know, I'm not supposed yeah. to love those movies now. I don't think it would be weird, but maybe. Yeah, I, I, don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting to go back and see see your responses to. I couldn't um, watch them. I couldn't watch them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have found that I started to stress test uh, films that I used to to, to enjoy and Ooh, then go I, back and see what which happens. Ones? Which ones? Um, wh- which one did I watch recently? Uh, I tried to watch Labyrinth. Oh, uh, yeah. And I how'd that go? It didn't go so well. Uh, <laughs> you remind me of the babe. 
babe with the power i have a huge labyrinth poster in my office there's that film is not perfect in by any means but there's some things about it that are just so good oh yeah 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 yeah, 100 percent. it's just and, and it, it's more just like uh oh i remember and i i think what it is ultimately um it's like it's not that i did i don't like the film it's just that i don't feel like i'm kind of spiritually connected to it oh, somehow yeah. And it's a bit like with uh, one of my favorite films and still remains one of my favorite films analytically is Back to the Future. But mm. it's also a film that is primarily a well, it's about a certain stage of life, you know, yeah. um, and it, it just didn't connect with me. Well, that was one of the reasons, actually, that I made the Terminator 2 analysis was that um, I it was stress testing that film that made me realize just how good it is. Yep. Yeah. Because in theory, it's about John Connor. Uh, you know, it's about him. He's the subject, but it's not really. It's about the Terminator. It's about Sarah. It's about three different stages of life in the same way that Jurassic Park is that it's, you know, there's the, 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 ch- the kid aspect, the parental aspect, the, the elders aspect, responsibility, morality. It's all rolled in. Um, I love I think- how you break these things down too, because it's almost like it is a magic trick for those that aren't aware of those things. So when we watch your analysis, I mean, it's your perspective, your opinions, obviously, and we can agree or disagree on it, but at the same time, you bri- you back it up with a lot of logic that actually has sense, which is great. And so it's it's like it doesn't remove the value of it because oftentimes when, like, let's say, the concept of God or the existence of life, when you really try to break that down and answer the questions of why and why we exist, it just gets kind of convoluted with weird kind of, like, um, endless questions that never get answered. But when you're breaking down your films and the things that you perceive on them, I could see you growing with them, which is really cool. And you learning the process of how these things work um, in a really brilliant way. I have something that you might not know about, but I know Tim Miller. Tim Miller, obviously, you worked with him. Tim Mm -hmm. is very close to Jim. And -hmm. and Tim sent Jim your, um, he told me he sent Jim your analysis of his film. Yeah. And 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 I'm sure that must have been a special day because I'm sure he told you, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. But so he was cool. also he was also very diplomatic with uh, to what degree he said what Jim said yes, um, yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the simple reason. I don't think Jim was massively impressed. <laughs> but uh, but Jim's a unique honest, guy, though. You know, he's a yeah, genius yeah. In, 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 of himself as 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 he oh, is. Yeah, you know, so. yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and the what what Tim said is it, uh, it resonated. But yeah. then um there's a big, there's a well, there's there's multiple. Fa- it's a multi-dimensional thing when a director uh, is responding to someone's analysis of his creation. Sure, um, that's complicated, not, huh? It's it's complicated. <laughs> not, not only yeah. if if it was just, even if it was just that Jim Cameron made that film entirely by himself, where he did all the all the lighting, all of the cinematography, all the sound. If he did the entire thing with not, without anyone else there, he still wouldn't be in a good position to understand how much of his decision making was driven by unconscious conscious or con- unconscious yeah unconscious or conscious which means that to consciously say these things aren't in the film so there's a great quote from um from uh who is it the the the, the editor walter much walter much oh, walter much uh, is great editor yeah classic yeah, he's, editor. he's an amazing editor but his actual kind of f- like the way that he f- like kind of comes up with a philosophy of what film is what the creative process is i mean he, he talks so much about what the actual process of making a film is and he he says that the best way to understand a director is that they're just the immune system of the film. Yes. Yes. So I, I love that. I love that line. I know it's exactly a part you're talking about. Sorry, yeah. continue. So he, he, what he's basically saying is that the person that's there in the top seat is there either giving yay or nay to the inputs of everyone that's, that's contributing to the story, which means that 
at some point there might be patterns that were applied to the film that Jim Cameron has no conscious awareness awareness of. Yeah. But they are still there, and he he was the one that was the immune system that allowed them to be there. But his his decision to let them into the film may have been entirely emotional, entirely unconscious, entirely entirely without an understanding that someone was actually placing in. Like for example, the cinematography, the patterns of the cinematography in the film, yeah. the patterns of reuse of the same motifs, even you know um, the the sort of the the setup and the layout of the spaces. Uh, it's genius though when you think about it not in the sense of like he's an einstein genius it's the the sense that he's within his um like what's what's there's a definition behind genius it's like the your genesis of your existence he's literally in his genesis of existence mm. doing his existence you know what i mean like at the highest level of creativity but you're absolutely right because movies and films are not created insularly or by themselves or there's a huge group that are put together and, and Walter Murch talks about that because there's you have all these people and when, when a film actually works and comes together it's this multi enigma puzzle yeah. that's moving at the speed of light and even James Cameron said it multiple times when he talks like if, if, if you ever I don't know if you ever listened to it but the um, when he him and Soderbergh are, are doing commentary on Solaris it's so cool to hear Jim be humbled and nerding out on another director live in real time over the film and that that's a really good commentary but because you can see jim's enthusiasm and excitement of watching another director's genesis you know and they're genius because they're so different like like jim would say like you know i would have done this action shot like a fucking you know like his style that's his genesis as genius you know and i think what what's really cool about when you break down your stuff which i'm sure which he received is he was probably like no, I just did it. And to him, it's just normal Jim Cameron life, you know, existing yeah. in the moment for you. Yeah, it's definitely. like, Whoa, look at these layers. And it's almost like an architect, uh, not architect, but like, um, archeologist, like discovering these relics and through the journey of you discovering it, you start to apply your own meanings and then it gets really meta. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a film about Stanley Kubrick's the shinings room 22, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen this yet. I've heard I've heard it's a fascinating film about how much can be read into, how much can be yes, fi- how much can be generated that isn't necessarily connected to to the reality of how it was made or why it was made. Yes, and I think that's it gets to a really interesting place, which I think is really cool because you kind of thread that line as well, and you kind of make your own art up as you interpret, you know, because you're interpreting yeah. as art as an art form itself. But at the same time, when you're watching this, I get really frustrated because as a very minimal amount of filmmaking I have done, when I listen to these guys, I'm like, no, that's not it. Because <laughs> they'll, like, they'll, they'll go off and like on tangents about tree alignment and stuff. I'm like, well, maybe. There's a, always a maybe, but most likely not. And it's just like when you're making a film, you're just fucking going hard and you're working yeah, fast yeah, yeah. and you're just making decisions willy nilly. Um, not but all, think, not always, but like for the but, most uh, part. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing about that, that, that kind of process that you're talking about, that kind of going for it willy-nilly unreflective, that's the same thing that often happens when you've got really brutal time constraints and you have to do something in a fraction of the time that you normally do it in. And often it comes out more dynamic, more fresh, more, more innovative, more, more dense than what you would have done if you were given six months. And I think part of that reason for that is that when you're forced into creativity, you're forced to rely upon the unconscious aspect 
of your decision making without having the time to reflect upon it consciously. Yes. So I actually think that what happens is that you actually get more truth in some respects out of the, the, the kind of unconscious, which is what we share, as opposed to our, our conscious realities. We're all in our independent bubbles, but unconsciously we share things. And one, one of the things that I would, I would say is not in defense of what I'm doing, but more as a, an explanation of the rationale of these analysis that I'm doing is my, my framework is always, does this pattern or does this theory justify the universal, um, the universality of the experience to so many people? So for example, if it's, if, if I come up with a interpretation that is specific, that's idiosyncratic to my life experience, yeah. And I can identify that, then I will immediately veto it. So if if I interpret, you know, a film and I say, well, actually, clearly, this is about the 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 anxiety that's induced from being a 33 year old man, then it's obviously I've just gone and excluded the majority of humanity. Whereas what I'm actually trying to do is look for the broadest psychological patterns that are universally applicable to anyone at any age and any in any culture. Yeah. And if you then get the kind of Venn diagram crossover between psychological principles that are universal and the patterns or the application of, of those mechanisms, either consciously or unconsciously, inside of films that we love, then I'm, a little light will go on and I'll say that's, that seems to be noteworthy. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then I, I do try my best to also, if I come up with a theory, I'll then go and track across a series of films to see if it's consistently applicable. You know? Sure. Well, to come to your rescue and to explain more uh, further about what I was meaning too, is that it's not, there's, there's, there's levels of this art that are really important to take into consideration. And I'll kind of quote some Fincher stuff that I learned is the beginning origin of a, of an idea and you have the script and then you have pre-production and you have production, then you have shooting and then you have editing, you have score and all that stuff. Then you, that's a whole process of the layer of the film. And a lot of the times that's just, it's an insular small little thing. It's almost like the same thing of like Radiohead recording an album. The moment that album goes out to you, to me, it becomes ours, our, yes. and then our, an art yeah. form, it reveals itself. And that's what I meant to say is that I didn't get to, I didn't, I wasn't articulating, finishing my thought, but what I was saying is no matter what Jim thinks, the art that he made goes to you and that now becomes your art, you know? Yes. And that's, yeah. and, then, and then your art interpretation goes off to, and everybody that we've um, experiences this through your talks that you are able to kind of exchange your ideas and get people to go like, Oh, that's interesting. Whether they agree with it or not, at least like you're going, look at this. This is interesting because this is happening here. And this is a formula that makes sense, you know, and not mm -hmm. everything in life is a formula, but there's all these archetypes that exist, for example, like Joseph Campbell's kind of like archetype kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean like the irony of this too. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Um, I think it's adaptation. Is adaptation? It's no, got, uh, no. Nick, I know Nick the Cage name. in it. You never seen that movie? Oh, no, I, I haven't seen that yet. Let me, let me uh, make a note of that. Adaptation. Please. And let me know when you, after you watch it, because, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm excited for you to watch this. Actually. It's a great film. Very good film. And, um, it's got Joseph Campbell esque things that happen in it, but it's, um, uh, it's a Charlie Kaufman story. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's done, um, I'm trying to think of the movies. Did he done. do, did he do cynic, cynic doc, New York? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen that either, but I really want uh. to, because the trailer was incredible. I don't know how the film lasted, but it's like a long ass film. Right. But, uh, yeah, well, he's did, I, he did being John Malkovich. Have you seen that? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I love that film. It's very unique. And also you did eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, which is 
Oh good. yeah, I, I saw that years ago when yeah. I was when I was younger. I, I was mega stoned when I watched it, but I remember it, <laughs> I remember it being really good. It's a very interesting film, but yeah, if you get a chance, at least watch adaptation because inside adaptation, I won't spoil it for you, but there's some Joseph Campbell-esque things that happen in there, and there's this like counterpart okay. to it because as um, as you can tell with his films and the way that he writes is he's not a Joseph Campbell-esque kind of writer where he's not formulaic, you know. Yes, he writes. Yeah. He writes in his own voice, in his own kind of genius, basically. Because, and not like I said, using this word as an essence of people doing what they're doing at their core, unconsciously yeah. and ups, um, unconsciously, um, at creating. I think it's really key and it's important. But, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. There's, there's I'm so gonna look. To... I'm gonna look into that because it's um, like it. It fascinates me more and more seeing when things deviate from the principles that I'm talking, because then there's obviously much more, there's more knowledge to be gained if, if things don't track directly, you know, when you get, when you get exceptions that don't seem to, to adhere to what you expected them to adhere to, that's, that's always fascinating as well, you know, because it's like, okay, well, there's, there's more, there's more depth here. Well, it's your art form. Your art form is anal- analyzing, studying and, and, and taking this information so that, and this is leads me to my next kind of thing I want to talk to you about is you, you're you're amassing this wide uh, uh, array of information by being simply you're being curious, right? Mm. That's a huge attribute that's very important to you and in, in your own person, right? Like you seem to be a very curious person about a lot of things, but mainly these things that have influenced you in your life, which are films. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have I have selective, very highly selective curiosity, which is that uh, I don't know if you're familiar with. Um, the big five traits no what's that so so the big five traits is um so i love psychology uh, that really fascinates me there's different schools of psychology and the best way to think of them is like a bit like when you've got the the earth you can only you can only display the map of the earth um there's no objective map of the earth you, you have to uh, distort or twist or bend in order to get certain land masses to look no, comprehensible dude, it's flat. didn't you hear it's flat <laughs> oh, oh yeah shit i forgot about that yes yeah, <laughs> yeah how the geniuses figured it out <laughs> people, man. in fact in some respects it i think i think it is actually the conventions of map reading that makes that kind of simple-mindedness um so <laughs> so attractive because because maps take something that's dynamic and non-objective um which is the the you know the geography of, of the planet can only be seen flat if it's been distorted. Yeah. So, you know, like, for example, the map that we all know where Africa is like massively shrunk down. And uh, <laughs> so if you, if you look at the actual true land masses, like everything fits into Africa, but yeah, it, it, it seems to represent a very small mass on the map itself. Yeah. But if you wanted to travel the Antarctic, for example, then the map that we normally use to navigate the world is, is useless. So you would then move the, the, the sort of, the frame of reference to a different pole and then the map that you would get out of looking at Antarctica would be useless for looking at um, you know Australia for example because it would everything would be distorted and the reason I bring this up is because psychology different schools of psychology are a bit like different perspectives on the globe Mm. Uh, and one of the most pragmatic schools of uh, psychology is is called the, the big five traits which is the reason it's most pragmatic is that it's one of the rare psychology systems that that different cultures agree is valid so for example when you get to say the myers-briggs you know like the i you know uh enfj or infp or istp or whatever that describes like the 16 Jungian kind of traits oh yeah 
uh, well, the thing about that is that it, a lot of cultures are like, ah, that doesn't track directly with the way our culture sees the world. But the big five traits are described as ocean, as in O-C-E-A-N, and it's openness to experience, uh, it's conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Mm. And the reason I'm bringing these up is because they, they are the big five traits that when you measure people on them, um, they are a very good description of no matter where you were born or where you were raised culturally, they're a very good description of your demeanor and the way that you see the world. Uh, and different cultures agree on this. Perceiving but, your realities. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's a model that you can transfer between cultures and it will still offer you pragmatic insights about the person regardless of where they've been raised. Uh, I am very low, uh, extremely low, um, in a subcomponent of these, which is enthusiasm. Um, and what that means is that uh, enthusiasm is a subcomponent, I think, of uh, openness to experience, I think. Openness to experience means not the openness to go on an adventure, but it's the ability to play with unconventional or unacceptable ideas. Hmm. So it's it's the ability to, to indulge thoughts that other people would immediately, especially conservatives, would immediately say, oh, it's, it, you shouldn't even think about that. It, we know the rules. That's not the way it works. But I'm very high in openness to experience, but I'm very low in enthusiasm, which is part of the same. I think it's part of the same family. But what it means is what it means is that I'm extremely interested in playing with ideas, but I'm very, very uninterested in 95 percent of the ideas that I will show any enthusiasm for. (laughs) So the level of interest I show, for example, in stories is astronomically higher than the level of interest I might show in small talk, for example. Um, so it's it's a very Are you on dis- a spectrum like an Asperger spectrum. No, I'm not an Asperger. Well, actually, I haven't checked that. I don't think I am. Um, <laughs> I, have, I don't I think have, you I, are either. But maybe I've asked this. I've asked this question to professionals, and uh, no, that, that the feedback I got is no, that's not. I'm not on on a spectrum. Um, <laughs> I'm actually kind of uh, I'm below average on extroversion, but I can produce extroversion in the service of something I care about. So I can I can be on a stage and stuff. Yeah, um, but I. I'll be pretty tired when I'm, when I'm finished. Yeah. Uh, when we did our talk and you did your breakdown stuff, you looked like you were exhausted. And I know yeah, that feeling because yeah. you just, I mean, it's so much energy. You put that out there and it's not like you're just trying to sell some kind of product for somebody or you're, it's like you are there and you're saying, yeah. look, I have these ideas and some of them might be lofty and like crazy, but at the same time, like check this out. And it kind of adds up. What do you think? It's like, it's not it's not a conspiracy theory because it's got more stuff to it, but it's really interesting because you're diving deeper into the formula of why things do what they do to you and they're a universal thing because we go, oh shit. Like so like I've watched Jurassic Park countless times. I never saw that perspective that you had. And I was like, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that, you know? And so and, and it's true because I think there's only in the whole film, there's only like seven minutes or so of dinosaurs. Yes, it's it's insane. And there's, <laughs> to, to your so, point, basically, because if you yeah. haven't listened to this talk, then you're listening to this. You should maybe stop listening to this conversation. And go watch it. It's on uh, Mike's uh, art station, and it's probably on your website too. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, it's it's, it's lurking around on YouTube. Um, yeah. I was actually, and I'm I'm really hesitant to even. I did that talk in 2015, and I did it. I I had to really rush it together um, spontaneously. And I had a very small window to do it, and I, I overshot my talk time by a few minutes, even though I tried to squeeze everything in. But I've thought about that film way more than that lecture discusses, like to a point where I could do a two-hour lecture about 
the the Jurassic Park that there's so much more there are so many more things in that film than people realize even down to for example the one of the, the greatest scenes in the movie and no one really recognizes it but when they if they were to see the hidden architecture of how it's working they'd be like oh shit is the lunch scene do you know the lunch scene where they they have the arguments about whether where everyone sits down for lunch and they discuss the yeah, validity the lawyer gets of the it and uh, he's the blood sucking yeah. lawyer yeah yeah yes yeah. exactly so the the way that that scene is constructed and shot and it's the metaphors within it is absolutely staggering isn't and, that crazy when you see these things and they reveal them to you have these uh, crazy epiphany moments well, you're like what the fuck yeah and, and one of my one of my metrics for testing this is uh like my cousin for example he's a he's a film composer david saunders and um I will, I will sometimes in a bar, I'll, you know, I'll run these concepts past him and I'll show him clips of the movie on the iPhone, you know, after four, four or five pints. And I, I'm interested to see if, if the response lands, you know, hmm. and I've done this a few times with a few different people where I talk about things I've never talked about in online and people, you see the, you see the sort of revelation moment where people go, Oh shit. Like the, the like the recognition. And if you break down recognition, it's recognition, it's recognizing hmm. or like, having a new cognition of an old thing. And I think that what people love more than anything when it comes to analysis is being told something that immediately tracks and corresponds to what they already feel and it justifies and reinforces it. So when you see something that makes sense and reinforces your experience, you go, oh, of course, I've seen that and I've never noticed it, Hmm. you know? And I think that there's so much more in the film. There's so much more in that film in how, in the way that it's organized and structured. Um, it's, it's, I could do another lecture on it and I just don't want to, cause I've, I've spoken about Jurassic world and Jurassic park. Now I just don't want to sound like a broken record. But <laughs> there is so much more to squeeze. You should squeeze it, squeeze that juice, baby. I mean, yeah. if it's good, it's good, you know, and that you just keep writing it because the more you discover it, that's in your enthusiasm and excitement. And when you're talking about the, the, the dinner scene, the cool thing, there's an exchange that happens. So I watch your excitement. It goes to me. I take that excitement. I watch the movie and I start to look for for things that I could then tell you like, Oh yeah, fuck, yeah. did you see that? Whoa, look at that. You know, like, and I love, I live through those moments. I literally, what, that's literally what life should be about is like finding those moments, being in those blissful states of like, um, recognition or, uh, analyzing and understanding something new. Yeah, and discovering yeah, yeah, something yeah. new, not just about yourself, but about the world around you. And I mean, I guess that is about yourself, but, um, no, that's, that's awesome. The really interesting thing about this too. And I, I really appreciate it is you're taking what is on the surface as these like, Oh, it's a fucking blockbuster popcorn movie. And you're going, no, 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 it's much further than that. Yeah, there are yeah, yeah. a lot of those. And then you to your point, like I never watched the new Jurassic park. I just, a, I'm too busy to really care about that stuff, and B, I just don't care about it. I just, yeah. I mean, maybe it's wrong of me to say, but I just already know what it's going to give me, and I don't mm-hmm. want to deal with it. There's, there's, I'm very hyper aware. I'm 36 years old now. I'm super hyper aware of the little bit of time that I have left here, and I'm just like, I'm not wasting a fucking second of it on anything that I don't want to do because it's yeah. simply not worth it. I, yeah, yeah. It's like I, I keep getting crap from everybody to watch this Chernobyl show, and I, and I want to. It's just like I'm. Right now, I'm, I'm I'm building out my next passion project, which is Star Wars based, actually. So it's be kind of funny, um, but I'm I'm putting all my focus and energy on that, and I'm also on a, like a dream huge project, um, like client film project. It's a oh, really nice, it's awesome. A, it's, it's kind of like one of those bucket list things. So I'm completely absorbed with like getting my skills to a level where I can be very um, sustainable and working on that. But so, anyways, what I'm saying is. 
I'm very hyper aware of not wasting my time on these films. And to bring it back to that one film, that is a popcorn film, I imagine. So I would invest it. But when you talk about Jurassic Park, I have friends that love that film so much. They watch it all the time. And it's cool that you're taking what's like, oh, it's just Back to the Future or it's just Terminator or it's just Aliens. But there's a reason why that that they have the impact and the lasting uh, effects that they've had for all these years. Yes, you know? yes. It, it it can't it can't be a coincidence that so many people that that for me is the 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 original I, I say genesis of the obsession is how can one thing be so accessible and so important to so many yeah like Star That's, Wars I mean, is so universal and it's like whoa yeah. it's crazy like that so and, many people have experienced this thing over yeah. so many years and there's and there's there's multiple reasons why cracking that code is is so valuable first yes. of all because because it's an important component of 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 when people share a narrative together that's that's morally and ethically valuable and they enjoy it then that strengthens the the group but also if you can crack the code you can make a lot of money so you you know the, <laughs> the film studios could be making more money and everyone could be more happy and yes. everyone could be enjoying themselves why wouldn't you want to crack this code oh man you know? it's an and enigma it's, that it keeps me up it's like yeah, I see a therapist now and I talk to her about the industry and, and I talk to her about this enigma and the mm-hmm. more I fall into it, I'm sure you probably have these moments too where you have these epiphany moments because it's this massive puzzle and we're all trying to figure mm-hmm. it out. At least at the high level, we're trying to figure out what, how, how does this work? Why does this work? Why does that sound design work? Why does that audio, you know, like what's that, why is it that John Williams had this score that works so well for this one, but they didn't work for this one. And how is it that home alone is so good we hear and like, and it's mm-hmm. and you're trying and it, there there's a way to break it down but man it is it keeps me up at night man <laughs> yeah it's, it's yeah, true yeah. and why wouldn't you want to try and solve it not only for the sake of making money but just for the sake of better mean bettering mankind because you yeah. said it in your talk you said that when you watched hook growing up your dad saw it and your dad was like fuck you know i don't want to miss my kids my yeah kids sports yeah. events and that had a lasting positive impact yes. on you in your life which is great yeah, yeah. it's it's insane and when i when i think about that that and I, I just do the do the extrapolation of if if it had that that crystallized effect on one person, even if it had a non-crystallized or semi-positive effect on on millions of people, yeah. and it changed the course of the, the the decisions they make in life in a positive way, then the, I, I really it sounds so hyperbolic, but there's no way to measure this, so it's 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 purely hypothetical, but. Spielberg, especially considering the subjects that he chooses to tackle and the moral core that he puts into all of them, with obviously the skills that come along with being a master of your craft, he's probably had more of a net effect on society than any of the people that we currently talk about as being um, important role models. You know, like compared compared Steve Jobs to, to to Steven Spielberg, and there is no comparison in terms of the positive net. Hmm. I believe, yeah. you know. And this is Steve Jobs is a guy that wouldn't even let his kids touch an iPad because he knew he knew how fucking toxic the things were, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like when you're shoveling a product to people that you know is not good for them, and you're you're sticking nets outside of a, a factory window in China so that the people making it can't even fucking kill themselves. <laughs> Get back to work, it's like, man. It's like, and and then and then in the ads, it's like the Bill Burke like comedy when he's he's saying, you know. And then in the advertising campaigns, he's comparing himself to fucking Gandhi. And it's like, <laughs> what is like the, just an ego off the charts, you yeah. know? And, and then there's, and then there's Spielberg quietly and, and un, under, you know, very um, quietly just beavering away for 50 years, making these films that 
that you, uh, they're clearly filled, and I believe it's conscious. I think that I think he plays down. I think he knows the themes that are in his movie. I think he's way more intelligent than he lets on. I think that well, that's early, a genius of him. Yeah, I think the uh, the what he what he clocked at an early age is to to conceal the hidden aspects of what he was doing from the people that were in charge. And I think, I think also not just because he's, he's, he wants to get the film made his way without bringing to light too many of the features, but I also think that he knows that when a, when a creator talks about their own work and the hidden aspects of it, it cheapens the work. Yes. You know? Yes. He never does. He never does behind the scenes or commentary. No, ever. no. And yeah. I'm sure that he would point out willingly and, and enthusiastically the great things that other people have done, yes. but he wouldn't do it about his own stuff. And, and you know, it's like, I think that's that's the reason that everyone thinks it's just kind of some sort of creative artistic genius, which it is, of course, because yeah. he's the originator. But I think he's way more way more cognizant of what he's doing than pe- people give him credit for. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's and I I would agree a hundred percent. And it's it's interesting. Also, yeah, to compare those two Stevens is pretty funny too. Because yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, they're yeah. both called Steve. Yeah. 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 This, this, but um. Yeah. I mean. There, there is so much, and, and and Steven Spielberg is just one of those directors too. It's like I'll go back and watch. I'm, I'm excited for you to eventually go into ET because ET has layers. Tons oh of man, no, no, ET. E. Like I, I could, I maybe I should do an analysis of that at Please. some point there's, <laughs> it's a brilliant film. Brilliant. There is, brilliant and there film. is, there is some amazing hidden aspects of that film that Shit I just tons. Yeah, I, I, I dare to say it's probably one of his most layered films. My yeah, mind. yeah. I, I think you're right. And even I've actually heard him say in an interview that a recent interview where he said he sat down and watched it again with with his kids. Hmm. And in a moment of, of kind of and in a moment of kind of uh, what's the word rare uh, kind of self boasting, he was like, yeah, man, watching that film with my kids, I realized it's like a fine wine. You know, it just seems to get better. And it's, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's I mean, and, it, and it's true. You know, it's true. It's like, it is true. It's so truth. good. Yeah, so you can, good. You can say that it's 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 the track record proves itself. You know. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But there's. What do you think of like um, films and directors like David Fincher, for example? Is there, are you a fan of his work? Oh, absolutely. Is yeah. there a film of his that comes to mind quickly when I mention his name? Um. I, well, Fight Club is a is a masterful description of of psychology. Um, but that's not written by him. That's but he's, Chuck Palahniuk, yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't write it, but he knows. He, I think Fincher did a good so, job interpreting that, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and to interpret something like that, you need to understand it. And Fincher, because I actually one of my my jobs um, when I was working with uh, with Blur and Tim um, and Fincher, I, I I was the brand strategist for Love, Death, and Robots, and mm-hmm. I was a production designer for a couple of the shows as well. So I had to come up with the 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 strategy of how the the show how you would unify 18 short stories into a, a brand that would be coherent and make sense. Yeah. Um, so I was very, yeah, very like pleased to be able to contribute something like that for someone of his, his stature. But the thing about him is that he is, there's different, different types of filmmakers, like, and I think obviously there's different types of filmmakers, but Nolan and Fincher are Fincher more so than Nolan. Fincher is cerebral to the limit. So he's he trusts his gut, I'm sure, but ultimately everything has to pass through a filter of logic. Um, but one of the things that I learned about um, when I was working on Love, Death and Robots is that Fincher's obsessed. He's obsessed with psychology, but he's obsessed with a specific school of psychology, which is called the Enneagram. 
Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this before. No, I love this. I'm, I'm taking all notes. How do you spell it? So it's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Okay. And this is, I learned this uh, when I was working on Love, Death and Robots, but uh, there's there's actors and actresses that have worked with him that have spoken you know, in interviews about about his obsession with this system. So the Enneagram, and I've studied I studied the shit out of it because as soon as I found out that he he uses it, I was like, okay, what's 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 to this thing? Hmm. And initially, when I deep dived into it, I was curiosity like, curiosity again. Well, yeah, there it is. And yeah. I was like, and I, initially when I looked at it, it looked vaguely superstitious. And then I was like, but there's no way it's it can be. It has to be logical because yeah, because he accepts he, it. He he subscribes to it. Yeah. And I I I deep dived into it for the last two years, three well nearly three years. What's and a deep is, dive for you? Is that internet based, or is there books that you also? Oh, read? like I've, I, you know, finding forums that people discuss stuff on the internet. Um, books. I've got plenty of books, but it's one of these schools of psychology that that is a constant. It's an it's an evolving system, so it's based upon very fundamental things, but it's constantly bringing in new data from psychological fields and updating itself. So it's more of a, an ongoing science. Hmm. But obviously, as with all psychology, that science should be should be tested exactly. and hypothesis, and should be able to be um, scrutinized and then defended with logic. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, it defended with logic, and it's it brings in go figure right in a time yeah. like now. It's like it's so stupid. The shit well, man, that goes on now. <laughs> so, so one of the reasons that he uses this system is a that it helps him understand the way people operate and why they operate, which is obviously massively important to a guy that makes shows like Mindhunter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or seven or like our Zodiac or any, or any of yeah. those things. That he or, or any of, any of his films really. Cause even fight club is, is a, is a deeply, it's, it's about the psychological development of a man that's following the, the rules of society. That's then getting in contact with his instinctive, you know, animal side, yeah, right. Primal and that's side, yeah. the primal side. And it's all just a metaphor for that process of confronting your shadow overcoming your ego and then integrating it. And then, you know, fight club even follows the model pretty directly of integrating the shadow, uh, joining with the anima. Literally. Um, yeah. Li- <laughs> Spoiler alert. If you <laughs> Yeah. So it's, it's, um, that's an amazing, an amazing tales and all of his, he's referencing uh, a lot of young in psychology. There's hidden, hidden components in fight club where there's even graffiti on the walls, which is, which is references to, to Jungian concepts in, cool. in certain parts of the film. But he, he uses the so one of the reasons that he uses the the enneagram is to understand how people operate, why they operate, what drives them, what motivates them, and why unconsciously. So the enneagram is composed of nine fundamental types, and then there's subtypes, and then there's it gets very complex very quickly. But the top level is nine types, and those nine types are divided into three triads. Now I, I would need to I'm thinking about doing a presentation just on this because yeah, it's I need that. the best <laughs> best thing ever. But at the core of it, it's the the circle. Uh, and the, the the circumference of the circle represents this kind of almost like a, think about it as a color wheel. Okay. That everyone everyone is a certain color, but they're a unique color. But they're still within a class of colors. So you could have red that's maybe a bit more purple or maybe a bit more orange. But you can you can type people pretty pretty easily for a very specific reason is which is that if we weren't able to have some sort of typology with people around us, we could never have any trust in them. Because in order to have any trust in someone, you need to be able to have an, a very intuitive, abstract understanding of whether they're of how they think and why they think. And one of the reasons I think uh, Fincher is so obsessed with um, psychopathology is because they're the one type of people where they don't fall within the spectrum of emotional kind of resonance, where they make sense emotionally or empathically. Mm. 
Um, so they're an enigma, right? So how the fuck do these people get through society when they don't feel the things that other people feel? Like they don't feel shame or they don't feel, in the traditional sense, anger or fear. And shame, anger and fear are the three triad components of the Enneagram. So the Enneagram effectively assumes that the characteristics of every personality type are dependent upon which of those three emotions you classically from a young age have have moved towards in your in your ego defense so for example i'll give you an example um numbers two three through two three four are in one triad and they're in the shame triad Mm. which is the the the, a young age people who are two three and four and the type two is known as the helper the type three is known as the achiever and the type four is known as the individualist and at a young age these people were made to feel from their parents and from the, the society around them that there was something inherently wrong with them and that they weren't appropriate or they weren't they weren't um they weren't somehow valuable to others so because of that on an unconscious level they feel a, a basic level of, of of shame deep down it's like it's below level of consciousness they just feel like they don't have value in society but in the triad there are three responses and in each triad there are three responses which is that given that that is the, um, an emotion that's that's rumbling around in your unconscious and it's unprocessed, there are only three ways that you can um, respond strategically with that emotion to the world around you, which is to either become an aggressor, to become a withdrawal person, which is to, to run, or to become compliant. So each type in each triad has a core emotion that has a core emotional aspect to themselves, and they have a different strategy for dealing with it. So for example, the type two becomes a compliant, which is the helper feels shame. And in order to avoid feelings of shame, they never put themselves into a position where they will be held accountable for doing anything where they might be shamed. Hmm. So in order to avoid that feeling of shame, they will find somebody to become a loyal helper to uh. because because their, their, their incessant value, uh, they're so worried about not having value and they're so worried about being judged for doing something wrong that they would rather sit under the safety net of somebody else that takes the, so they, they become very good assistants, for example. Mm. And, and, the, and the, this sounds like a negative thing. Every type has pros and cons because sure. the, type, the type two helper, um, they can have extremely valuable use of that strategy or they can have very toxic use of that strategy. So they can become, for example, um, para, like almost like parasites in terms of emotional parasites that they can they can they can believe that they're actually offering emotional support to somebody, but actually they're doing it for self survival, and they can actually become quite toxic in in demanding that people provide for them in return for their help. Hmm. You know, yeah. so the type three, which is is the achiever, becomes the the aggressor, which is that they take their shame and they become aggressive with it. And the type three is the the sort of person we've all met. These people, these types, will make sense. Sure. The type the type three is the person that has to be the best at everything they do. <laughs> Yeah. And they want to become the best, not because they have any interest in the subjects or the, the, the activity in which they become the best, but because in order to, 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 to silence the feeling of completely being worthless to society, they have to constantly prove to society that they are the best at everything they do. Yeah. But in doing so, they never actually find any fulfillment. They, they never fulfill themselves. Because they're always they just, searching. Yeah, exactly. Find that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the type four is the individualist who, and they're classically connected to creatives. Mm. So the reason they're connected to creatives is the individualist takes their shame and they withdraw from society. And the reason they do this is you cannot lose in the game if you don't play it. 
And mm. the, now the classic type uh, four is uh, teenagers who become very, very um, anti-conventional or unconventional. So they want to um, discard all the rules of society. So they, the people that become uh, goths, for example, are the classic example of individualists who feel a sense of shame and a sense of not belonging. And therefore, they they actively withdraw from adhering to any of the rules that other people use. Because the, so, so the theory is that by not participating in the game that everyone else is playing, you cannot be accused of losing it. Yeah, exactly. You remove all of its power. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, by so being that, that individualistic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one strategy that the, that with people that withdraw use and you make your own once, you make your own world and reality. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the, the the positives of this, of course, is that people that do that. Tyler can Durden. Up, yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> also, Tyler Durden with. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the Enneagram system, uh, the fight club through the Enneagram system, but the, the value of creatives is that because they are not thinking conventionally, they can come up with new ideas. Yes. And that's, so, that's, that's where the value is in our future as a species. Exactly. Yeah. So in each of these types, they respond to the emotions and like each one of them is, is unbelievably nuanced in the way that it manifests itself. And I've studied this so long now that when I meet people, I know I, I can very quickly understand. <laughs> like I, yeah. I can very quickly understand their drives, and more importantly, why they have those drives or their fears, and why they have those fears. And the the most valuable thing that I've taken from the Enneagram is the degree to which it has increased my empathy for anyone I meet, mm. because their behaviour makes sense in such a way that you can go back and the Enneagram and the really good books on the Enneagram will describe a situation in the childhood period of that person's life that will explain why they're such an asshole. Sure. Yeah. Cause then you start to understand, okay, well this there's, there was a catalyst moment Yes. and yes. they're repeating that deep habit. Yeah. Yes. And you, and you, you get these, these case studies where it will say, well, at some point at this age, this person was, um, we'll give you a good example. Achievers, uh, achievers, people who fall into the type three who are deeply ashamed and need to constantly prove something. They need to constantly prove something because at a young age, the guardian figures that they looked to for confirmation of their own importance and existence constantly made them feel inferior or that like they, or they weren't even there yeah. or they weren't even there or they weren't matching up or they didn't succeed in the ways that were being measured. Yeah. And you and then you you visualize that person, that fucking guy that's getting tanked up in the gym and trying to tell everyone how much he's worth in his salary. <laughs> and you visualize that person as a three year old being made to feel ashamed because they don't behave in the way that they're, they're usually typically it's a father, but it can be father or mother, depending on the, the organization of the family. Yep. You just visualize that child first discovering or first be beginning to believe that they have no value. Yeah. And you go, Oh shit. Like that's fucking tragic. It's sad. Yeah. It's sad. I, I mentioned earlier in passing that I'm starting to see a psychiatrist. I think it's so mm. important. I really love it. Do you, have you been to yeah, a psychiatrist? Hey, hey man. Yeah. Yeah. For, for, in fact, it was uh, it was it was going to therapy that first introduced me to the concepts of of Campbell and um, there you go and, and, and Young and then yeah brilliant yeah and Isn't I, that beautiful I, what a yeah. what an amazing oh. exchange that was huh absolutely what well, I, I believe it's just if we had to for, like make formal rules of how society works it would make <laughs> way way more sense that we would have not mandatory but that there would be a culture that encourages the idea mental of health. mental health yeah. you know and. Um, it's a hard one to admit that you don't know have the answers, you know, and that you have yeah. problems and that you have you, that you are flawed. Cause yeah. I mean, so much of it comes down to me for just like being raised by a single mom, not having a father 
And then a lot of it's like, why? Because I will ask my therapist, like, why is it that I'm constantly seeking appreciation or acceptance from others? And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. it comes down from me, not like the same question I asked my mom, like, what did I do wrong? And, you know, like, why don't I have a dad or, and all these kind of things. It's really deep. It sucks. But at the same time, it's so good to go through them because as an adult, you should live through these experiences and evolve past them. Because it yeah, is, it's, yeah. it's part of your journey and it's part of your hero's journey. It's what we love in Star Wars. We bring it back to these things. On the surface, yes, they're popcorn films. Okay. But at the same time, they go far deeper than that. And that's why they resonate. And that's why you're interested mm. in them. That's why I'm interested in them. Because we want to understand the formula, not only about those things, but about ourselves. Because we're on a, our own hero's journey. We want to know yes. more about yeah. our own thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, it's, that, it's that relationship between the great stories are a, un, a universal, universally applicable metaphor of an external journey that represents an internal journey that you need to have. So the, the, <laughs> the, the idea of going into the unknown and going into the, the belly of the beast yeah. is, is just an externalized metaphor for the process of going into your own shadow. And Jung talks about this, that the, the shadow is everything that you've repressed in order to follow the code of conduct that was that was enforced upon you by by the, the process of socialization so you know and that's what the enneagram is a description of it's it's the ego strategies that's all it is mm. personality it, it kind of takes a bit of a weird uh, shift in perspective to see that your personality is and this sounds awful but i, I believe this more and more your personality is merely a strategy an armor that has been developed purely from negativity mm. and pe- people don't don't want to think about that a lot of the time. They think, no, 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 my personality comes from lots of positive things. It's like, well, no, your ego and your sense of, of your, your avatar interface is formed by the negative aspects of what you've experienced in the past, because it wouldn't need to form itself at all. If there was no negativity, if it was, if, if everything you ever did was positive, and everyone else was positive and no one ever had any conflict or any reason to disagree, then no it. one would no one would have a personality. Yeah. Because why would you need it? You would have you would have a universal networking uh, language set up already, which is that you're already all in agreement. Yeah. That and there's no need for strife and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. a problem that I always kind of face too, like so I kind of grew up in poverty and all that kind of stuff, but my daughter hasn't. And I always think to myself, like, hmm, am I doing her dis- disservice, <laughs> you know? But I fight that back going, well, no, nah, not really, because I think it's actually good that you that I'm able to provide a good living for her and hopefully that she can still have a good existence that will kind of, you know, she'll be able yeah. to have enough strife in her life that she'll have enough adversity to give herself, um, you know, a quality of life or understanding. Because uh, you, you can measure life's um, value by it's lack of value, you know, like you can, Mm. it's that duality of things, you know? And so, yeah. And I think that's such an important thing about the journey of itself. I mean, you know, this first and foremost, all artists do, everybody that's listening to this, as an artist knows that we have to go trial by fire, fire. Nobody ever just picks up a pencil and translates what's in their imagination directly, perfectly onto paper to people. It's just never, never happened in the dawn of humanity. Sure. Whatever you might have, like some people might be a savant. They might be able to be a copy machine or whatever. They could do a little bit about that, but I, I'm not talking about a copy machine. I'm talking about a, like somebody that has a genius fucking existence and they have an amazing uh, imagination that fulfills and propels the, the ma- our species mm. via art by using their mind and taking the discipline to go and, ex- and, and put the time into to, to, to hone your hand and your eye coordination in order to take your ideas and get them out there. We all know that that's a trial by fire and that takes years to do. It's yes. a, it's a yeah. real, but that's a great journey though. And I think most artists, 
well, not all, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm maybe it's just the artist that I know, but most of us are very hyper aware that we have all our shortcomings and we have lots to learn and lots to grow. And I think, there's, Oh yeah. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. more than ever nowadays. Um, this is something that's going to lead to some things I want to talk to you about more than ever though. Is like, I mean, when Da Vinci and all these guys were starting out, I don't know what it was like to live then. Um, I don't know what they had to deal with, but they didn't have, I couldn't imagine the, 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 the abundance and the rate is so different. I can imagine. Cause when I went to the Louvre and I was watching, looking at all these ba- amazing paintings and I was really trying to figure out, okay, well, how long did that person take to do that? And mm. oh, who their, their client was the church and the church was based on the people that believed in that part of that religion, blah, blah, blah. And their, their payment was to be fed and taken care of. It wasn't about money necessarily, but it's also having a presence and being like a social status of being, I'm the artist that's painting the mm. blah, blah, blah. And, and now it's like, it's so crazy because it's like, it's changed and shifted so much. And now it's like, oh, it's like selling a Pepsi commercial or Nike shoes or something. I don't know if it's one's better than the other. I mean, whatever, but it's, it's also really crazy. And, and the idea that we're all learning so much, you know, you have to learn 3d and the process of 3d, 3d modeling, UV and all these kind of things, which is like tertiary, but you also have to have a good idea. It's so multifaceted, you know? Um, yeah, I think. I think uh, I think though it's 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 almost like a different. If it, it's like what's that that quote from um, who's the guy? Did Michael is, is it Michelangelo? He talks about the the block of marble. Yeah, yeah. And he says that he sees it already. Yeah. Well, he says like uh, yeah. I, I'm, he stares at a block of marble for days, and people are like what you're doing, and he's like I'm I'm deciding what part of the marble isn't David, you know. So it's like <laughs> he's he's kind of like internalizing how the, the thing, what, what he's going to take away from this block. And in order to do something like that, you have to have an abstraction or understanding of like volume and, and form. And, and if you do that, you can do that mentally as an abstraction, or you can use tools that prop, not, not prop up that like a scaffolding as it were. Sure. And I, I've always thought that learning 3d was the best thing that I could have ever done because in a kind of step-by-step process, it allowed me to, turn 3d just the process of making a 3d form into this kind of abstracted process of all these different variables that you need to have in your mind about how something works and how it moves and how it animates and how it how it's formed and then the textures and the uvs and the more you you learn all of these layers of abstraction the more finally the more nimble your mind becomes in thinking about any kind of visual form that's 3d based um and i i guess it's just a different this, like a different format of thinking that if we didn't have any of 3d studio max or, or blender and we were left to try and solve that problem we would have to come up with more with more mental strategies to to comprehend it but maybe that's why there's less artists in that time because they didn't have there's less um like now more and more people can create something because the scaffolding of the tools allows them to overcome those barriers that would otherwise have required a genius to, to abstract in their own mind. Totally. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we're kind of, we're on the shoulders of the giants, you know? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, one of the problems the pitfalls that I have too, when I encounter interactions online with people, like when they, I show them my art and they go, they ask like this, this summation of, of the thing and it kind of def- cheapens it for me, but they're like, Oh, what brush did you use? Or what magic button did you hit? Or like what program did you use? And I think that answers one part of the questions. Cause yes, that's part of the equation. But the other one is why, why did you make it? And so mm. what I'm saying, what I mean by that and not to go off on a tangent as I often do, but it's mainly because like 
um, using these programs and, and standing on the shoulders of these people that spent their life kind of producing these programs, like the Ed, like the cat mole, I think it's like, I was just look. I was, I was using the program the other day and I was using subdivisions and I was like, well, I wonder how this works. How did they figure out like the parabola equation or something to get like, um, to beat the computer at, so it doesn't over complicate things or like making instances and that kind of math. And I was like, how crazy is that? And now I'm just using it willy nilly because I don't need to care because I'm the artist at the end of it. And yeah. it's, it's like what I'm getting at here is, is there's two sides of this, right? We're on the, the shoulders of giants, but at the same time we must create and use these tools efficiently, effectively and um, make art with them or designs or whatever. And I agree the moment that I started taking my career and myself seriously and starting to learn 3d properly, um, I still, I still kind of hack my way through it, <laughs> but yeah, it, cause it's such a fucking, oh, it's just, oh man, you have to have so much, um, you have to put so much attention and time into it. Just poly modeling alone is just like such an enigma edge loops and all that kind of stuff. It has core fundamentals, but you always run into a problem where you're like, wait, how did I get this? Oh yeah, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's one of those, yeah. Like you say, it's, you just got to go through the hard slog of learning. I think that when people talk about like things like brushes, I think it's, it's all, it's, it's like, it's the natural response of, um, and I know you. I know you didn't mean it as a as a critique because it's just it's just one of those features of the the community. There's many people that ask about brushes, and I get the same thing. And I, I think meant it's it just, as a critique. It's okay. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Stop yeah, fucking asking yeah, me that question, guys. Um, <laughs> no, it's I okay. Think, I don't mind. I think it's like it's it's when you've not gone deep into something, yeah. and you have to assume what's important in the process of making something, and all you see is the surface attributes, then you're of course going to grasp and cling to the one thing that you can identify at the surface, which is, Oh, there's different textures here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a surface level question, but you get a surface level answer. Yes. The exactly. Thing is, the thing is I'm just talking about going deeper, but that's only because I guess I'm trying to get there and I'm just like get frustrated by like, yes, yes, yes. It's that's the surface level thing, but I'm trying to understand like the, the multidimensional levels of these things yeah. and why my subconscious led me to this thing. But I mean, I, I mean, but I think, I think that you can only reach that stage though. Like you're, you're talking about like the, the stage that you're reflecting at. You, you reach that by, by deep diving through the craft until, until the point when the craft is unconsciously baked into your, the way that you operate where you no longer think about it. I mean, that's what flow is, right? It's yes. like that, it's that point stage. where you've, you've got to that point where, it's no longer a um, not only not only is it no longer an obstacle for you to to, to technically use the, the tools. I would argue that it, it's the opposite of that. It's that the act of learning those tools and encoding them at an unconscious level dur- during that process, you've developed a, an incredibly multidimensional, abstracted understanding of many many things, so that they take they they birth. The, the flow is the point when all of those abstracted ideas that you've encoded on an unconscious level are suddenly activated and you're not even part of that process. You're no, just, you're, you're, just a, you're a, you're a, a vessel at that point. Yep. You're a vessel to the journey. And that's why like, this is something that leads to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is learning the process of learning. And I'm all about, I'm a huge proponent for project-based learning. Like you, you over, you like, this is something I would maybe don't suggest people do, but you just tell a, an employer, you, as long as you have the attributes to go and fulfill it, but you say, yeah, I can do that. But you should just be a little bit, you should be shitting your pants a little bit 
because you're like, oh, maybe I can't do it, but I'm going to figure it out tonight, you know, and it, and it yeah, accelerates, yeah, yeah. it lights, it's, it's the hero's journey again, I pre bringing it up, but the hero's journey goes from safeness to unsafeness, you know, yes. and that, that you're saying, you're putting yourself in an adverse situation, but it, yeah. the best thing is when you put yourself through that trial by fire, because you can't blame anybody other than yourself, because yeah. the worst thing is people will say, oh, you know, like, the world sucks because I'm this or that or whatever. They're using any kind of excuse um, to blame the world around them. But when you can blame yourself, it's like, it was great because you're like, well, fuck. When you, once you take a, like, I remember there's a documentary that I watch oftentimes. It's, um, it's um, Todd McFarlane's The Devil You Know. It's online. You can find That's it. But me, Todd McFarlane. Yeah, I think you might like this one. But he, he said that when he's having a hard time, he'll look at himself in the mirror and go like, well, uh, yeah, I'm the only one to blame here, you know, and I love that he just accepts the fact that he could be at fault for whatever is a problem that's going on in his life. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a great thing because that's part of the hero's journey is realizing like, oh shit, like I'm the one that put myself here and I should kind of fulfill it by, you know, fulfilling, by going through this trial by fire and trying something new and exchanging new things. And that's what's really beautiful in my mind about art and the creation of art and going through that trial by far fire and like really learning these new things and trying different things. And I don't know. Yeah. It's, mm. it's why I, it's why I do it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine like, I don't know, maybe I guess probably minds like us would be okay doing whatever <laughs> because we'd just be curious about it, like golf or whatever. Um, cause it's just like, you're fulfilled by it. But I think art is one of those like world enigmas because it taps into the human psyche and the human creativity. Like, out of all the animals, why is it that we're this way? You know, it's a mm. really interesting trait. If you break it down, like being creative and like making films, for example, is such a weird thing. It's a very weird thing. You know, it is, it is weird. It's like coming very up weird. with these, with these algorithmic fucking experiences that, <laughs> that, that can interface with your fellow nodes in the network. Um, like They're so surface level, you know, it's weird, but they'd go really deep too. It's just really weird. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and that's I think that's what Campbell and, and Young are, they they get at so well is that these things are operating they're they're connecting at a much more fundamental level than we have any con- conscious awareness or access to. Out of all your kind of studying and deep diving and questions and stuff, have you kind of found some patterns of your own and some things that kind of a summary summary or an evaluation? Have you started to see the enigma if if I were to say that right? Like got yeah. like a little look at something going like, Oh, Joseph might've missed this or because Joseph wasn't a designer like yourself, you know, he was a different avenue of, of what this part, this enigma is. Um, so did anything reveal itself to you at this point? I, yeah, like I have, I have unformed. So my, my Myers Briggs type is, is what's called an INTJ, which means an introverted, intuitive thinking judge. Um, and what the two major components of that is N and T, which is intuitive thinker. And what that means is that I'll have an intuitive gut feeling about something that I'll understand intuitively. And then I use thinking to, to, to codify and turn it into a system that's shareable, if that makes sense. So, um, I'm at a point right now where I feel an intuition that I'm moving towards something that's useful in terms of connecting a few different studies together specifically um various like metaphysics that i've become interested in like just the sort of philosophy of <clears throat> what life is and what it's what it's why it exists and connecting some of those kind of formal metaphysics to some of the more antiquated kind of descriptions of say the monomyth for example 
you know, Campbell talks about it in a very <clears throat> not spiritual way, but he talks about it in there's a lot of religious uh, kind of vocabulary that he uses. Um, and I'm, I'm all, I've always been slightly hesitant of accepting religious terminology. Sure. But but now I'm I'm very curious about how to translate that terminology, that kind of vocabulary into a different metaphorical framework that people can go, oh, I see, that's what that religious concept means. Um, and I'm kind of interested in if that's possible. And I believe it is. I believe that actually uh, one of the reasons that we're losing faith in so much important um, metaphorical text is that we no longer have trust in the things that we associate with religious terminology. Because, you know, in general, religious institutions are really making a hash of things uh, and we associate it with with doctrines and, and ideologies. And I think that we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes okay. to um, when it comes to, for example, religious texts, which if, if you look at them through metaphysical, like a metaphysical framework, they're, they're basically just highly, highly fucking market tested stories that have survived thousands of years yeah. and hundreds of hundreds of generations of people that share the exact same operating system as you do. So it's not like these people, I, I found, I came up with an interesting analogy the other day when I was thinking about stories that like the stories about, you know, people, people in the Bible, for example, and we make, we make an extraordinary leap in our assumptions about who the people that were listening to these stories are. And we make those assumptions based upon the way we see religious people today listening to these stories. And one way to think about it is this. Imagine if in 2000 years, the, the, the stories of today have become largely lost, but then people found a couple of copies of the Avengers in the desert. No. <laughs> and now just think, just think about this for a second. And then they then found a Blu-ray player and then they, they somehow managed to watch these stories yeah. and they were to suddenly then say, ah, these people 2000 years ago literally thought the Hulk exists. <laughs> we would, yeah. we would go, no, you fucking idiots. Like we always knew it wasn't real. It was a metaphor. Like we watch it and we digest it. We didn't walk out of the cinema and think that the, the Hulk lives, you know, jumping hundreds of meters into the sky. We did, we never believed that. Sure. And, there's a huge disservice that we give to people 2000 years ago that we think that they were stupid savages that literally believed the tales of the Bible. And there's a lot of anthropological evidence to suggest that they always knew it was a metaphor, mm. but we're the idiots in the modern day that take these texts and mainly through, through institutional ideology. Sure. That, that, uh, to just destroy it and stuff. Destroy yeah. it by turning it into a, a trying to Logical justify base. it as a historically self-evident piece of text and it's like no it never was that yeah. and if you start to think about how annoyed you would be as a member of the year 2019 <laughs> if you found out that a member of 4019 thought that you were dumb enough to believe in batman then you might have a slightly <laughs> more like kind of sympathy for people that were listening to these metaphors 2000 years ago and using them do you know what I mean? No, it's that's like, a really great point. I never thought of it like that either the, too. Yeah. The Bible was the Avengers of, of its day. It's yeah. like, it was, it was the metaphorical mythology. The week, by the way. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've not watched the Avengers. I just know that it's a, it's a modern mythology and it's tapping sure. into it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a shared codified metaphor narrative 
that people are it's a superstition you know and people are drawn to it like crazy i mean they do it does exactly. well on the numbers you can't def, does you can't that's exactly. the reason why it's successful because it does have its place yeah. and merit so i like but, that analogy i never thought of that sorry continue. Yeah. i didn't mean but, to interrupt. but yeah no no amount of copies sold of the avengers will ever change the fact that nobody believes that this is real yeah yeah that's a good point too and that's a good point about like um, because I grew up without religion, so it wasn't really a part of my personal household. So, and any questions that I had, it would kind of evolved eventually when I was like more or less curious about it, but there was only bad experiences that I encountered with it. Um, mm. just like people that were just, they would use it as a way to hide their true nature, which is a sinner yes. or like some kind and, and, and that's a bummer because religion has so many things up against it. But to your point, um, these stories were there to kind of lift and carry the human spirit the human uh, society basically to you know don't hurt your like don't don't hurt your neighbor or you know like to do bad things is wrong and um mm. so i think you're right and taking that as a literal thing is actually a, an error on the yes. behalf of, of the yes. user the end user yeah. and if we could just be a little bit more enlightened with it and not take it so literal but to actually use it as a mechanism to kind of help guide life i think if anything, that's the power of it. And, and I look at religion. That's why I haven't dismissed it perfectly or completely from my life because I've seen like alcoholics or drug addicts, uh, drug addicts and stuff that have used the power of religion within themselves to like overcome their adversities. The problem is once it becomes a crutch and it becomes this thing and it's like anything else, it's, it's just a crutch, you know, and then that's never good for anybody. So it's, it's like this interesting double, double thing. But I think the idea of using it as a story, a mechanism, I think is, is perfect. It's perfectly put together. That's cool. Yeah. I, th- I, 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 uh, I agree with you in terms of you can, you can use it as a crutch or you can turn it into a, to a literal ideology that you expect everyone else to adhere to in order to, to satisfy the security of your ego. Yeah. Just because it's like, then, oh, we all believe in the same thing. There's comfort in that. Um, but sure. people that, people that really integrate those, like people that go to Alcoholics Anonymous and they integrate the, the religious content, obviously some of them will become ideologues, but a large part of them will simply be processing the narratives of the Bible in order to enhance themselves. Yeah. And once again, I'm in no way suggesting that the Bible is something that should be listened to literally. And I think that an institution that uses it for its own personal gain is abhorrent. And I yeah. think that, I think it's disgusting. And I think that, I think that that is just a grim set of state of affairs, but, <laughs> but the, but that that's if somebody found to use the example of the you know Batman again if somebody found a copy of Batman in two thousand years, or or if if the film studio slowly morphed themselves into churches, uh, you know and <laughs> yeah. and started saying that actually Batman is Batman is fucking real, which which isn't isn't outside of the realms of possibility. That's what to me seems like the church did is that over time and it found it easier to control or to, to benefit or to to have personal profit by, by demanding that people committed to it as a literal fact. And yeah. The boogeyman's going to get you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if, if film studios did do that over the next 2000 years, it would be unnerving, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so them. wouldn't put it past them. I think one of the one of the biggest <laughs> one of the biggest services that when you I've heard quite a lot of amazing psychological interpretations of biblical texts that that when you hear it through the lens of well, what does this mean psychologically? What does this mean if you apply it to life? 
in this context. Well, it means this and this and this. And in these situations, it means this. And you go, oh, God, that's so elegant. But I didn't see it because it was it's the hidden architecture below the surface of the, the, the story. But it's there, you know, and I think the biggest service that anyone could do for civilization right now would be to find a way to adapt the moral core of what's valuable inside those kind of texts and turn it into a, a, a contemporary version that people um, can digest. And I think I think that's what great storytellers are doing, you know, something like Jurassic Park or even Nolan's Batman, the trilogy, which I think is I haven't watched the third one more than once, which I, I'm going to do because I, I really didn't enjoy it. But the first <laughs> the first two yeah. are just I've I've they're, they're two of the films that are the reason that I got into analysis. Like I, I, I remember once printing out the entire script of Batman Begins and putting it up around my apartment so that I could just connect. <laughs> connect. Sure. It's in your face yeah. and in your world. Yeah. 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 It's a just, film that uh, I rewatched revisited recently. and It didn't hold at all to me. And I was like, whoa, like I couldn't even watch it. It was weird. I don't well, know Batman, why Batman Begins or Dark Knight. Um, I think it was the Bane one, the third one. Oh no, the Bane one is that's the one I couldn't watch. Yeah, like, it was just it, filled with one-liners and shit, and it was driving. Yeah, me it, nuts, was, so. it was all it was awful as far as I can. So, I couldn't make sense of how what happened. The only thing that I can make sense of is that, as I understand it, Nolan's plan was to have the third film be the Gotham trial of the Joker. So imagine the, the continuation of the theme of the agent of chaos yeah. being on trial for what he's, he's done. Yeah. And then that being a, a kind of foundation to bring in a new villain while you've got this guy that's still in control somehow, even though he's being trialed by the, 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 you know, Gotham city and the, uh, the, the, the remnants of that theme you can still see intact because scarecrow has his courtroom set up in the Dark Knight Rises, where he's he's the judge and jury, mm. um, and I th- I think that there was I think that that is probably some artifact of the original process. But then Heath Ledger obviously died, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. And then the third film had had to take a radical change of direction, and, yeah. And I and I think that that really I think that really screwed up Nolan's plans, and I think that's why the third film is to me it seemed largely incomprehensible. I thought it was crap but. it was really hard yeah it was hard for me to sit through and that's probably man, maybe that was it yeah I but I, your analysis and stuff always always helps me too like because it helps me really appreciate things a little further too i think which is great it's almost like um when i go and drink wine or something i'm not a big wine person but like the enthusiasm of the person that's giving me the wine and they're like you know this grape is from the blah 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 and this and that and it's like they're giving these virtuous things that are like really important that to them so that spreads off. And so it's a really cool thing because it's just part of the journey. And it's like, oh, that's cool that you like that part. Or, and it's something I love talking about with films, with people that are not just like, that movie sucked. Or like, you know, I get it. And there's a lot of like clickbait shit on YouTube for that kind of stuff too. And I don't even watch that stuff anymore because it's just more or less like, I hate when people bitch and complain and are not going to go and make something of their own, you know? So it's yeah. like, cause it's yeah, so yeah, yeah. easy. It's not easy, but it's easier to... Um, critique something that's finished then make it yourself you know um, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah that's one of my fucking big problems i have because and and that's what i mean what I, I noticed it was almost like for my own self personally it was like i would criticize films and say they're a shit but i couldn't articulate why and i was like well that's a problem and then i would go well if i think that this is shit then i should go make my own see if i can make anything better you know Mm. try to put myself up through the challenge of it you know and and, and so i haven't made any that's one thing i always say too if like i watch a movie and it's really disappointed me i'm like well 
I haven't made anything better than that. So whatever, you know, like I still have a lot to go for. Um, and that's just my personal way of like pushing myself harder, you know, by like destroying mm. myself, I guess. <laughs> but, um, no, I think, um, yeah, I think I, I, I remember liking, um, the first Batman because I mean, I'm a huge Batman fan and that might be what I'm working on right now. Potentially, maybe. So <laughs> I didn't say it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like I, I'm a huge Batman fan strictly because of like the essence of what that character means and stands for and the code of ethics. And I think that out of all the superheroes that, that I know of, maybe Logan has a little bit too. And that's what made Logan so good or Wolverine um, to me. I mean, I rewatched that movie recently too, and it has like, it has its own pitfalls for me, but it also has some really great attributes that I think are great. Mm. Um, but yeah. What are some films um, that you've watched recently a recent time that you really enjoyed or took something from or um, I have one that I want to ask you but I want to see what you've watched recently I, I really I, I really um, shows whatever I remember I remember we kind of chatted about this briefly a few years ago but I'm terrible at watching new things yeah, I, it's true. I just I am I just, too <laughs> I find it quite stressful uh, me too <laughs> I just I kind of go oh, sh- can I risk wasting my time with this it might suck oh I'll just watch <laughs> Jurassic Park again um, so uh, uh, I, okay one, one film I did have an experience watching and this is kind of an unconventional response to your to your question, but I think it will answer it. Um, I was on the plane to where was I flying to? I was flying the best to Vietnam. time to watch movies you've never watched normally because you're stuck. <laughs> well, yeah, one hundred percent. Planes are now like the the one space where I feel like you know, okay, I can I can risk this because the time's gone anyway. Yes. Um, but I was on the plane watching a film that I remembered really loving when I was younger. Korea, I think it's Korean. I might be wrong, so f- forgive me if I've got the 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 culture wrong but it's called infernal affairs i never seen it so infernal affairs was a film that was uh made in i think 2000 and probably 2003 2004 something like that but the, the film itself is the actual basis for the departed mm, okay okay so and, and i mean like that it's the departed is it, it's not a it's not a a, a theory the departed is a, a western version of this eastern film <laughs> they do no, that no. So they do that so many times yeah yeah it is it is but obviously scorsese's helming it so it's going to be a, a really decent experience <laughs> but what yeah. was fascinating is that i I'd, when i was younger i'd watched the departed uh, i'd watched infernal affairs and i thought it was just untouchably great i guess because of the mystique and the exoticism that comes from watching a, a sure. film that you feel is exclusively yours because it comes from a culture that no none of your friends have watched yeah that's uh, a that's a good point thanks for bringing that up because that's tr- totally true <laughs> that happens, you know it's like oh this is my personal secret favorite film that you don't get yeah um then i watched then i watched the departed a few years later and i i remember feeling like almost incensed that scorsese was he, I think he picked up an Oscar. That was his first film, the first film he got an Oscar for. <laughs> and I remember, there I remember you go, thinking, baby. I remember thinking, like, what the fuck? Like, this, <laughs> that's not your film, blah, 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 blah. Sure. And then I kind of held that. Even though yeah. The Departed is a great film, you know. And, yeah. but it then is a great was, film, yeah. What was interesting was that on this flight I was taking, I can't remember, I think it was from, from Berlin to, to Vietnam, I think. Oh, that's a long flight. It's a long flight, but the... the, the um, it was that the airline was an Asian airline. So there was a huge stack of Asian films nice. to watch rather than just Western films. And I saw it. And I was like, oh, man, like because I'm obviously averse to trying new things. I was like, I'll just rewatch Infernal Affairs because I remember that being really, really good. <laughs> and it was fucking brilliant to watch because it made me realize just how much Scorsese had improved the, the structure, 
uh, the, the well, not Scorsese. I use as a catch-all. I'll use the director's name, even sure. obviously he's not exclusively responsible. Yeah. yeah, the production. They had improved the 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 writing of the characters, the the dialogue. They had improved the arcs. They had they had done some very elegant changes. That when I when I was watching Infernal Affairs. I had these intuitive moments where I was like, oh, it's a shame they didn't merge that character with that situation or have, you know, it, have this 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 guy's girlfriend be his other guy's therapist. That would have been more interesting, blah, blah, blah. And then I remembered as I was thinking, I was like, oh, that's what Departed did. <laughs> and, yeah. and, it, and it made it such a... a, a it, it was. It made it a really tightly knotted experience at the party. It made it so much more emotionally impactful that they had taken the base of Infernal Affairs and really refined it mm. to a point where I was like, "Yeah, like it, it is a different film. It just has this. It has the the start points, you know." And I think that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that too. I think no, actually no, you need to have all. a touching pace, and I think that's why um, we talked about religion and God and and the man's uh, our, our ability to take these stories and evolve them. Shoulder um, of giants, like you say, shoulder of giants. Shoulder of giants. I mean, every generation's on the shoulder of giants, you know, and and it's like where you get your resources from and how you pull your muse and how your taste has evolved is really kind of tells a testament to what you leave as a list, lasting impact on the world, yeah. in which you leave, you know, behind, and because we all are, and you, there it would be asinine to think that you have an original thought because it's really not true. <laughs> you, I mean, yeah. in your mind, you do have an original thought, but you just have to be very cautiously aware that the fact that you have had the thought that other people have had, whether you're like, I made the iPod or iPad or whatever, dude, we've all wanted that thing. It's just yeah. that you managed to work with the right people to make that happen. And yeah. kudos. Yes. Thank you. And just like your critique of, um, internal affairs and the ad- adaptation is like, it's, it's, it is evolved, you know, um, mm. sometimes better, sometimes worse, you know, but yeah. it all depends on the taste. It all comes down to the taste and, and the integrity of the production, which is putting it together, I think, you know, so, yeah. But it was, it was interesting as well to see just how, um, the, the changes that departed made, I could, they were codified in a way that was really, really ex- explainable. And I haven't watched the departed in years, so I can't remember this, this exactly, but for example, I can give you an example that there was in the depart in the infernal affairs movie, there was supposed to be, there's a point when two characters that I'll, I'm going to give it away because, you know, people have seen the past or not. It's a spoiler alert. So, two characters. One, one is an undercover cop that's working in the in in the gang in the gangs of of this you know east eastern um, kind of drug dealing uh, cartel, and his kind of for want of a better word, his father figure is the police the the sort of police handler that's his only the only person that knows that he's a cop, yeah, and also undercover. So he's he's got this unique relationship and. At the end of the film, or towards the end of the film, the 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 handler is is murdered. He's thrown off the top of a building, and he hits the pavement down below, and uh, he 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 dies kind of in saving this undercover cop from being caught. Hmm. And in the depart in the Infernal Affairs, when the undercover cop comes out the front of the building and then sees this policeman, this kind of his handler of twenty years, hit the the car in front of him, and he just sees his dead body. I realized I didn't feel anything. And one of the reasons I didn't feel anything was that there had only been uh, one beat in the entire film that suggested that they had had any kind of emotional connection. Hmm. And as a general rule, you need three. You need, you need, a, you need an actual, uh, an arc of first, you need to tease the idea that these guys have a connection. Then you need to, to reinforce it. And then you need to confirm it with some kind of a, a symbolic gesture. Sure. 
And what they had done is they had rolled all of those gestures into one meeting where the cop kind of treated him like, look, just do your fucking job. And then he sort of said, oh, by the way, I know it was your birthday. Here's a watch. And they did that in one scene at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And then two hours later, they kill the cop and they have this really sentimental music and him looking into the eyes of this dead cop. And you're supposed to feel something. And it's like, look, you can you can codify that that there should have been three independent um kind of gestures of emotional connection between these two characters before this event happened Mm. and it's little things like that where i was like well that you could you could just explain that as a rule you know and and it wouldn't and it wouldn't be a rule that would be extremely limiting it would be reinforcing what something that's fundamental which is that you need to see the base level before you adjust it you know yeah that's and a that's, a meta- that's a metaphysical principle it's like the rule the rule of thirds that the, the i forget what it's called it's like the didactic three or something mm-hmm. that you first need to see something you it's like it's like when someone solves a, uh when someone accidentally discovers something something first happens coincidentally then they test it then they confirm it and then they know they can act upon it yeah so it's like when someone sees something it's like it's your classic it's your classic thing in like house or something where someone says something and <laughs> or, then you see him, you see him kind of his eyes light up and then you realize that he's got something and then he'll go and do something that kind of tests it and then he'll confirm it and then he'll fucking put it into action or something. And it's like, it's, it's, you know, there, there's a, uh, some interesting, actually on Tuesday I'm going to meet a, a, an author uh, who wrote a book called the power of film, a guy called Howard Suber. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great book. Um, the produced power of by, film. The Power of Film. It's a great, great book. And it's this guy was a UCL, UCLA um, kind of lecturer and uh, on film. And he just wrote this film, uh, wrote this book, which is just all of these. Each page is basically a kind of short paragraph, which is an incredibly important anecdote about the fundamental building blocks of making a film. Oh. And it's, it's, dude, if you haven't got it, you've got to get it. I need it's it, fucking amazing. Okay, thank you. The Power uh, of Film. And what is his name? His name is Howard Howard Suber S U B E R. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm friends with the the book publisher um, for various reasons, and um, I had said to them, I was like, I love this guy. Can you can you basically? I love this guy's book. Can you can you set up a lunch? So I'm going to go and see him on Tuesday. Awesome. But his, this book is a really fantastic um, breakdown of things that you intuitively know are fundamental, but when they're put into a codified cerebral paragraph you go oh of course it's like face face palm you know it's like if you break that rule i know that i'm gonna be uh, unhappy when i'm watching it you know yeah yeah and it's just filled with those nuggets where you go of course that's a self-evident um important component of making a film but you never have a a, 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 we take it for granted a lot because when you really experience it at a high level you're just kind of like well, yeah, that's what makes it a good film. And I think that's what makes art great when it's effortlessly, like when you look at it and it's effortless. Yeah. My wife and I are watching like one of those, like it's called American Ninja Warrior. It's like this silly show, but it's cool. It's like these people are like doing all these kind of crazy tricks and stuff. But when you see the difference between kind of a novice person going through these things and then you see somebody that's like legitimately trained and their body physique's ready for it and they just kind of they just go through it. It's just like, whoa, you're seeing that person at their core experiencing it. And it, and it looks simple, but if you were to try and attempt it yourself, you just fall right on your face yeah. or you wouldn't even be able to climb it at all. So it's, it's, that's the beauty of really great art, I think is being able to do it. And I think that's what makes this enigma of filmmaking and all that stuff so interesting because it's so multifaceted. 
because it's mm. not because you can have a really great film. Well, I don't know. This actually, this is a good debate because one of my favorite films is No Country for Old Men. You've seen mm. that film? Seen that? I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'd have, I have to watch that again. Oh uh, man, that film's got the layers of layers. It's got so many amazing. It's brilliantly done. Brilliant. It's probably one of my favorite masterpiece films, in my opinion. If you watch it, the more you watch it, the more you go like, oh my God, I didn't notice that. Or like how they're using that against that. And they're, they're pairing this to that and the dynamics of the story and how it works. But, um, I'm trying to think of what I was bringing that up for. Oh, it's just like, I think it's just the, the genius of how that thing flows is so great. And just how, when you're watching something like that, or if you're experiencing something like that, oh, I, that's what I meant is, is so with Star Wars, for example, Star Wars has this, these amazing score, John Williams, masterpiece, mm-hmm. gen, gen, genius score, amazing, brilliant stuff. You can't imagine Star Wars without it. Right. But mm-hmm. no country has little to no score. It has a couple resonating notes, but like it's no score basically. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it still survives and exists and works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, really I, yeah you, you can, it's like, yeah, no rule, no rule can, can every rule can be broken. Yes. If you know, if you know, if you have an intuitive grasp of how to break it, because you're a master. That's um, true. That's a pretty good point. I think it's, it's I, I guess what, I think sometimes what I, what I say can come across as, what's the word? A rule. Sure. prescriptive and people don't like that especially people that consider themselves to be creative to the core and that they're just universally amazing at creating yeah. they think that it's just limiting and it's like no you, you no. Dis- creativity comes from discipline and craft you know yes yeah. I, I wouldn't i mean i think if you're feeling insecure about hearing what you're saying then you're you're just insecure about your own ideas <laughs> you know like it's yeah. like it's not like yeah, you're yeah. prescribing that and saying that's where the rule is I think what's cool is that you're 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 out there saying this is a possibility, and it does up for us, the viewers and the fans of your work and the fans of the work that you're critiquing, to evaluate it our, on our own merit. And if it makes us feel uncomfortable or in any way, well, then it's like, yeah, then you know, there's a reason why you feel that way, you know? Yeah. Because you're being yeah. you're you're deeply and subconsciously you're being you're questioning your own self and your own uh, attributes. The last mm. time we talked, you hadn't worked on Blade Runner. So this is, I'm well, curious actually, to see how that happened. I actually had. That Were was you working the, on it? That was, it? Well, that, that was the weird thing. I'd, I'd already finished on it. Um, oh, God. Isn't that so crazy? I remember, <laughs> I remember it was the most insane uh, secrecy project because it was weird because when you we were recording it, you you said you were talking about the cinematographer. You were like, so, you know, making the new Blade Runner, Denny Villeneuve, and, you know, what cinematographers are you using? And I was like, uh, Deacons? <laughs> and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, shit, I, I don't know how much I can. Sure. In the contracts, not only were we not allowed to, to tell anyone we were on the film, we weren't allowed to tell people where we were in the world in case people deciphered it. Um, it was it was absolutely insane, to, yeah. like like un- unhealthily insane. It was unproductive because it, it made the process of making the film damaged. It damaged the process. Sure, I imagine because um, it's just ugh. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was pretty. It was pretty bad. But uh, yeah, so Blade Runner, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you can't talk about it still, or you can a little bit. I, I'll, yeah. I'll talk about it now. It's, it's it's been like it's been years. Um, they yes. won't come after you now because they've already made their it, money back. They, exactly, I think. They, they don't care. I think they have. I think um, I think it did really well in the long term. Yeah, and it, it and didn't it do continue. well in the beginning, but I think it figured itself out. Yeah, same as same as the original. I think yeah. it's just slow burn. Well, it's a, it's a particular film, and it, yeah. it's not. It's it's a film that, in my mind, um, having watched it and experienced it a couple times, I've watched it maybe four times now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's multiple layers to it. There's a couple of really interesting things. Like there's a lot to it. So it's not an average 
moviegoers experience so I, I wasn't expecting it to be this smash uh, avengers kind of hit thing mm. the problem with it is very expensive film so it's like expensive to make but you created some really interesting props for it and i thought that was really cool and i imagine you're only sharing probably like a, a bit of what you've made right yeah i've actually i and mainly just because of um i just i get so what's the word I don't like releasing stuff until I feel absolutely confident that it's the best way to present it or something. So I, I keep stuff back, which I'm trying to, I'm trying to get over that quirk because it's so, uh, it's so unhealthy. Yeah. But, uh, but because you're a freelancer too, right? So yeah, there's that as well. That's unhealthy. Know, like, and, and also I'm just, I'm really, I'm really freaking lazy about the process of getting stuff like web friendly and posting it. And like, oh, it's just, yeah. I find, I find it's, I find it vaguely stressful. I think it's because of the, the, the constant awareness that you're basically putting stuff out for other people to judge. judge is, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> I've, I've actually got yeah a lot of stuff that I haven't shown yet, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm just kind of drip feeding it over time. That'd be um, cool. But, It'd be cool to see that. Yeah. Cause you did a lot of, a lot of really key components. Like the dream maker thing was really cool. The thing was, yeah, I did. I did a, with the exception of about three, I did every prop, um, that's crazy. The, that they hold. I designed Kay's apartment, Kay's bathroom, which you don't actually see because of the, the way that it was shot in the end was so minimalistic, but his kitchen, uh, Dr. Badger's office, which is the office where he tests the wood, wooden horse. Hmm. Um, did you do that one like white room or it's like, uh, well, I forget the line that was in there, like incomplete or whatever. Oh no, no, that sells. Yeah, sells interlocked. Yeah, um, I love that no, room. Uh, that's some city I didn't, stuff. I didn't. It's some. That's a really cool. It's a really cool room. That was uh the the room itself was uh, production designer Dennis Gastner, and then I think I think it was Carmen and Nev, hmm. I think who designed the the sort of the, the thing that looks at him. You know. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a cool, it was obviously a really cool experience. And yeah. Come on. <laughs> just, well, just, just to be, well, it's also, it's, it's, um, for various reasons, as with all projects that you, you care about, there's, there's, you're highly sensitive to things, you yeah. know, and I was, I was highly sensitized to certain things that were happening in the, the process that were making me uncomfortable, um, which in retrospect, I, I should have been less, um, I don't know, less perfectionistic, I would say, sure. in terms of, like, or less judgmental. I think mm. that would be a better way to say it. <laughs> um, because the film obviously came out, came out great. Yeah. Um, and it was, and it was a learning experience as well, because there were many things that I, I, I had a disagreement of that when I saw it in the final film with everything combined, like lighting and cinematography, not disagreements with directorial decisions, but maybe disagreements with departmental decisions. Sure. Um, cause naturally I don't think Villeneuve, I, he can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, <laughs> Pretty awesome director, man. It's awesome that you got a chance to work with him. He's on my bucket yeah. list of people to work with for sure. And he's, he's a, Here he's a, a really nice guy. Yeah. Like not, not, not going to try and play that card of, you know, me and Denny, cause we, to, we, we, we know, he, we know each other's names, but that's as far as it goes, if you know what I mean. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you work for him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like there's any real interconnectivity there, but just to, just as just, yeah, sales interlinked, but just as, uh, <laughs> Oh wait, you're not sales interlinked with Denny. Okay. Well, but, but whatever. Just, uh, who then, just, uh, then who are you, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So my life's over. But, no, uh, but I, I, but I know just, what you're saying. Yeah. Just from brief observations of him, like, I can genuinely say that he is 100% uh, just an amazing, amazingly kind human being, um, with, with zero, zero ego. Um, so it's, it's kind of nice to know that the guy that makes a film that films that you can respect so much is also respectable. Yes. That's also insane. 
That's yeah. insane. Yeah, because it's, it's it's always a ladder, you know. Mm. So that's what I've heard that from multiple people. And usually, what my my rule is if you hear it from like at least five people, the same, yeah. this basically verbatim kind of stuff. You're like, oh, okay, well, this must be pretty accurate then, because it's you can fool a couple people, you can't fool that ratio, you know. So I think I think the 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 rule that I find the most pragmatic is if it comes from people that are below in the hierarchy, yes. then you've, you've got a solid, um, a solid, uh, kind of judge of character. Yes. Cause that was another thing from my brief experience was, uh, yeah, the, having on various productions, just the, you, you meet the people that you know pretty quickly, whether they're actually decent human beings by how they treat the people that are under them. And, uh, yeah. and that's the biggest, the biggest measurement for me of human beings is, whether you shit on people below you, you know, that's so hard sometimes because I came, I came from learning in the school of real hard knocks, just like fucking like boot camp kind of stuff. And the bosses that I've had in my past are just kind of ruthless like that. And so part of, part of that's ingrained in me. And some parts of me is like, it's, it's, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's healthy. And I think it's also bad, but at the same time, I think there's, there's parts of that that are necessary at times. I don't know. I have, I fight with that all the time because if you're just kind and, and courteous and nice to everybody, and accepting everybody's opinions. I, I just don't know how you get any work done, but maybe he's figured it out. I don't know. But yeah, my hat's off to him because that's a, that's a struggle that I hit all the time because I've heard uh, nightmare stories about many directors, but I go, well, maybe that's just how it works. And if you're an idiot and you come to them with stupid shit and you're not on their table, if you're not on their level with them, then it's yeah, like, that's yeah, annoying. Yeah. You know? well, that's, yeah. that's where I think there's a, there's a big difference between, because I actually think there's a huge amount of integrity in treating everybody um, as if they're equal to you. Yeah, so in other true. words, if they say stupid shit, you treat them as if there's somebody on your level that said stupid shit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's good. Okay. I'm like, glad we covered that. Cause yeah, yeah, yeah no, for yeah, sure. Like yeah. there's no, there's no strength in being unnecessarily nice to, to everyone just because you think you should. Yes. Um, and I think, I think that Denny Villeneuve, I think he really inter- internalizes that. I've heard him give a, a talk at, uh, I forget where it was. He, he was, he was given kind of some kind of a, uh, an honor at some university or a film school of some sort. And he gave a speech to the students and, and he did, he did discuss the nature of the shit he talked to, he, he's obviously pretty versed in psychology, but he talked about the concept of, of integrating your shadow, hmm. which is integrating the, the, the instinctive component of yourself. That's that can be antisocial and can be rude. And I think he struggles with that to some degree because he is such a nice human being. He doesn't want to ever become aggressive or anything like that. And he's very, he's a peacemaking soul. But I remember hearing an anecdote of, uh, I can't remember the exact anecdote, but it was to do with David Fincher. And, um, it was, it was the, one of the, it was on Gone Girl and it was the scene, they were shooting the scene where, uh, where Ben Affleck is being, um, kind of, he's on, he's on the kind of pagoda thing. And then it's the moment where all the, the, the film crew, all the kind of news crews decide to turn against him kind of thing. So there's loads of news crews around and he's holding a picture of, you know, his wife. And it's that kind of request for, if, have you seen my wife? She's missing blah, blah, blah. And everyone thinks that he's, he's at this point, they think he's the murderer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, during the filming of, of that scene, uh, there was an extra, um, who was, who was holding, <laughs> holding a camera and, uh, and he interrupted. Uh, he interrupted the production. He was like, "Hey, like somebody get me a battery." And the and the, the one of the kind of assistants was like, 
dude, look, you're a fucking extra. And he said, yeah, but you want me to look like a fucking cameraman, right? The red light's not on. And Fincher turned and just said, get the man a battery. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, he's an extra. But yeah. what he's saying is, I want to do my job properly. Yeah. And this scene should be perfect. You don't want somebody watching this scene and realizing the guy's holding a camera that's not on. That's a good point. And, good and point. you know, and Fincher's not going to shit, shit on somebody that, that helps wants to do their job. Yeah. It wants to do their job and wants him to do his job and wants the film to be the best possible thing it can be. Yes. Then he will make time for that. No, no doubt. Yes. You know, I that's think that some, point. some people have low patience for any kind of interference, regardless of its value. I think for example, it's highly possible that Cameron might be a character that's <laughs> more susceptible to, sure. to, to emotional outbursts, regardless of who he's talking to. Yeah. I haven't worked uh, with him, so I can't say, but I've heard... I, I haven't either. I haven't either. I've, I've heard, I've heard anecdotes, um, not, not from Tim. Um, yeah. I've heard anecdotes from people. <laughs> yeah. just, not, not, like, not fair for us because we don't know, but at the same time, we don't know. Like, we don't know. It's, it's anecdotal, right? But it's, it goes back to, uh, it goes back to what you say. If you hear enough things from enough people, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. have to come to the conclusion that there's no smoke without fire. You know, it's, yeah. um, Everyone gets their day in court, but you know if, if there's, you know, <laughs> there's a consist- if there's a consistent thing there, and I, I, I doubt that. From what I understand, I doubt that he would disagree with that either. I think he knows. I think yeah, he, he knows. seems to be very open about his, yeah, his own um, shortcomings and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, this is given for two guys who haven't worked with him, but are appreciative of the work that he does. So just grain of salt, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. he still he still remains, regardless, oh. to be a, a creative hero from from my perspective. And so. I think that's important to have those uh, attributes that make you who you are. I don't think I think that's one of the problems, and that's what I find really curious and interesting about it. Because like even with Kubrick, Kubrick was very like just relentless in his pursuit of the art in which he was creating. And same, I see those tr- attributes with. Um, Fincher I don't I've never worked with either of them I haven't worked with any of these guys but then I hear stuff about like Danny and I'm like wow how did he do this when he did it like this you know and how did Steven Spielberg do it like this because he's doing it totally different from that so I think what it comes down to when I look at that as an enigma I go well I think it just comes down to personal taste character um, what matters to you most and really just kind of following following what it is that is that you feel is most important to do what you're supposed to be doing you know if that makes any kind of sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i also like just from my brief exposure i, I just finished on dune as well so ah, damn it like, second <laughs> second film and um awesome like did you work with brief- like george hole and all those guys yeah 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 awesome. so uh so so that was that was really good fun i was doing a lot of prop work um tons of props and- in that movie yeah yeah. So, um, but going back to the whole concept of the immune system, one of the things that I found so uh, positive about um, like Denny Villeneuve is that he was so receptive to like if you did something and it it clearly contained in, inherent value, he would change his plans around that. Yeah. So, so for example, like. There was there were scenes like in in Blade Runner there was emphasis given to certain things in the film that that were not planned for like for example in the the um, the the scene where uh, in the apartment where Joy um, is first activated when she comes out of the kitchen yeah and uh, the the I designed the ceiling projector and mm-hmm. I, I I actually designed the animations for the it swivel so arm I, and everything right yeah so I, I I actually mocked up the the animation and, and in fact I'll I'll post this on Instagram or yeah, something yeah please do like the joint mechanism thing so I, yeah I, you I show your work more man 
Yeah, I need to be more proactive with that. <laughs> just, but, just have somebody help you with it. Yeah, I, maybe I should get somebody that can help me with it. If you're listening I'm, to this episode and you want to help Mike, just reach out to him so and help <laughs> him with his social media. We could all we could all enjoy seeing, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm pretty crap at social media. I just blasted have, you. There you go. But now you have yeah, somebody to help you. It's good. So, I'll get an influx, hopefully. Somebody's going to write to you. Yeah. But it was it was really nice because like if if I if when I would put something forward, um, the, his response and he he says it's a, you know when you've hit the the the, the right notes because his response when he's really genuinely excited he says I love it I deeply love it I deeply love it <laughs> in, in that French in that French accent yes because um, you hit it yeah that happened a few times and then he would actually like he he would integrate it and it goes back to that immune system thing of this helps sell the scene that I want to, I want to sell. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to change my, you know, and, and he, he's got a right hand man, uh, Denny Villeneuve, um, a storyboard artist called, um, Oh yeah. I heard about this guy, uh, called Sam Hudecki. Yeah. He does all his films, right? Yes. He's done, he's done all his films. Really nice guy. Another, another Canadian, uh, from Toronto, I believe. Um, really super nice guy, Sam. And, but that it, it does a disservice, I believe to, to refer to it as, as a storyboard artist because it's more of a conceptual partner in crime. So they, sure. they obviously in private, they talk a lot about what the scene is about. They discuss it at length. Um, they, they brainstorm and come up with ideas. So it's, it's not just, Oh, can you, you know, show me a few frames of how this looks? It's, it's a carefully orchestrated dance. You, you know? feel that when you watch the films, that, not even that you feel it, you just know that there's some thoughts that are put behind these things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's hidden themes and there's, there's concepts in there and that are in the script. Obviously the script provides those, but, uh, but for sure, it's not just, a. Uh, um, out of nowhere it's not just random you know everything's carefully considered yeah as it should be because it's yes, a huge exactly. responsibility as, <laughs> you it, know? as it should be it's not yeah. just some bullshit commercial it's something that's mm. important it's going to stand and it's going to be part of human history and it's very important to take that stuff seriously mm-hmm. we talked about this before i think and i know we're going to wrap this up soon here but we talked about this before um i think we did so you're doing all this stuff you're, you're evaluating you're working with directors and all this stuff there's an end goal i imagine I would imagine, I guess, I don't know. I don't want to assume, but where are you going with this? Are you going to, are you considering writing? Are you going to make your own IPs? Are you going to direct? Where are you taking um, all this energy? Or do you even care about that? Do you just want to design? Are you, in, are you in the moment in which you want to live um, continually or wh- where is this all going? Uh, I used to think I had a clear kind of goal, um, which is that I wanted to direct. Um, and then when I, I kind of thought about that for years and that was one of the strategic reasons that I made. It's, it's not a coincidence that when I finished Blade Runner, I went and did the, the Jurassic Park and Terminator talk it was like, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to be in this hierarchy at this level anymore. So I thought it, a demonstration of the understanding of film would be a useful thing. And that paid off exactly how I hoped it would in terms of, um, the offers that I, that I got to do more directorial stuff. But, then I realized that I was actually really kind of tired and uh, maybe I wouldn't say unenthused, but maybe just I had, I had maxed out my enthusiasm um, for what I thought I wanted. Sure. And now I, I, I'm on a, a course which is not necessarily planned at this point, which is kind of why I'm just traveling. I'm just, I'm just now, I used to think that I wanted to, to direct, but now I, I feel like maybe the best value I could bring is would be to try and continue coming up with or solving things that I think are valuable and trying to express them, you know, in lectures and talks and stuff. But I, I just the films. 
Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, I honestly, I don't know where it's going. I just, I like solving problems. And if somebody, and if anybody's listening to this, that has a very interesting problem that needs to be solved. I do. Um, <laughs> the next passion project. It's a Star Wars one. I'm going to bug you about it. I'm just going to spam you with it. So it's okay. I, ideally, one that pays the bills would be nice. Okay, but, well, uh... I'll figure something out. <laughs> yeah, there'll be uh, something there. So, But, but I, no. I like... I like interesting problems and I like autonomy. So that, those are my those are my two things. Like that's a future, if, though. Autonomy is a future. But that's interesting, and that's actually really good because I, when I look at what you're doing and your efforts that you put into these things, and I kind of see it in like, there's a couple of YouTube channels I think that do some deep dives into stuff really articulated and well well thought of, and I think well, well how important it would be for like a production to hire or bring you on as a just like. Um, like Steven Spielberg, so a lesson I learned from Steven, many of them, but one of them was when he was making a Minority Report, he had brought in all these futurists to come and sit in and take, take all these ideas that they had in the script and see what was plausible, what stuck to the wall and what didn't, and evolve mm. that. I would, I, would, I would think the same thing. So it's the same thing. I'm going to try and flesh out this idea, this whole world and stuff, and I'm going to go to you and say, hey, what do you think of this? Give me your perspective because I'd like to see where, where are the holes here, and then I'll make it better. But you know, that's I think that's the immune system thing. You know, It's like you got to take medicine. You can only self-heal so much before you have to go see a uh, you know a professional or somebody with a different perspective, because mm, yeah, I think yeah, these yeah. things are not made in a great stories. Great art aren't great art isn't made in a vacuum. It comes from human experience. Again, like that's human experience. that's uh, that's I think that that's a really good that's a solid point because I think that um, what I've realized the last maybe the last two years is that I've gained a, in a bubble. I've gained a, a large amount of knowledge and theory about stuff, but. Um, that's come at the expense of maybe going out and doing real world things. So I'm like right now, that's one of the reasons I just got back from Asia, did the whole typical go to Asia, travel around thing that most people, (laughs) most people do in their twenties. Okay. Uh, which is, which is not, it's not, you know, I don't, I don't particularly enjoy it, but I'm like, ah, it's because I don't, I don't enjoy it. It's maybe because it's slightly uncomfortable is why I should do it. So now I'm doing, um, I'm doing a whole host of things. I did a, I did ayahuasca recently. Oh, is, cool. Interesting. Yeah. That was, uh, how that recent was, was that? Uh, so that's five weeks ago. Oh, so pretty recent then. Yeah. And I, oh. yeah. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. Um, cause it's, I barely scratched the surface. Sure. Did you but die? I didn't have ego dissolution, hmm. which is what they, they refer to it as, which is where you lose your sense. But I did, I, it was a, it was a pretty extreme experience. Um, sure. But at the same time, I, I can say that my, my ego, which is, is pretty muscular at this point from being trained to be on guard all the time, it didn't, sure. it didn't, it still held its, it held itself oh, in a way then, huh? you got to go deeper basically. So, <laughs> so, um, so now that I've had a, now I've had a, a kind of trial run, um, I'm interested in, in, yeah, seeing how, how deep the rabbit hole goes. Uh, but it was, it was. It was a whole ro- it was a roller coaster. It was it was pretty terrifying. Um, yeah, I've heard crazy stories. A bunch of my friends have done it, and it sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's not. It's we're busy minds, not, you know. You know, so yeah, yeah, and it's certainly not a pleasurable. Like it's not like oh yeah, I'll go and get high. It's like it's no. not. It's you you. It's fucking. It's pretty traumatic. What um, drove you to to do that? Just an awareness that that the comfort zone is is not gonna yield any meaningful, um, value. Mm. So I felt uncomfortable about it and it seemed like a very productive way to, I just finished on Dune. I'd had a kind of strange mirroring of, uh, 
I think life works in this quite strange symmetrical way that lots of life events came and repeated themselves in a kind of transformed way. So I, I got, I went to, I lived in LA for a year. And then when I left, I was offered to go back to Budapest, which is where I was on Blade Runner mm. and I was on Dune. And it was interesting to go back to similar circumstances to what I was on on Blade Runner before I had had my initial to push towards doing these lectures yeah. and kind of going back and then having that frame of reference to go, okay, I've, I've done all this stuff now. What do I feel about the situation? And then, uh, what did you feel? Cause that's pretty high level stuff working with probably one of the best directors right now on some of the biggest properties and people would, um, they're listening to this or might not have that situation. Well, obviously don't cause it's very limited amount would probably look at you and envy you, but I imagine it's not what people think it to be. Right. Um, no, it's, it, I mean, it was, it's, it's a great experience. I honestly, sure. I can't, I can't complain. I, I, I won't complain. I would have complained if you had asked me three years ago, I would have had a, had a bitch session. Um, <laughs> that's because you're growing though. Well, well, that, that's it. Like it's, it's just a slightly more mature outlook. I, I got a good experience in LA. Um, I was trusted with a lot of stuff and I, I had a lot of influence, but I would say that my character has, has a lot of, and the Enneagram has been very helpful in this. Um, has becoming self-aware of certain defects in the way that I process things. And when I say defects, but let's call them opportunities for growth for the sake of positivity. Um, so going back to, to Budapest and working on Dune allowed me to, to go back to a familiar territory and kind of compare, do a comparison of how much I developed, where I developed, where I hadn't developed, what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. And Dune was a great experience, but at the same time, it's, um, I can, I can design things like props now, um, really quite, like, it's not an arrogant thing. It's just a conditioning thing. It's just, they're, they're, they're quite effortless to me at this point. So I can design something because I know, I understand the, the problem and understand how to solve it. And, um, I guess the feeling was one of like, am I, am I actually really challenging myself enough or am I in a comfort zone? Hmm. Because we, we, we will do that, right? I mean, we all know, for example, artists that that just do the same fucking thing every day. Uh, and it's not a bad thing, but it's like there comes a point where it raises the question, like, can you go further? Can you, can you, have you, have you reached the point where you're spinning wheels? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and sometimes that's hidden too, because it's from yourself. And yeah. <laughs> well, well, that's, well, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's, it's. It's a, I've, I think I've come to an awareness that I'm, I'm hide like, uh, if I'm honest, I'm, I'm concealing a lot of stuff from myself in the name of, of comfort and, and familiarity. Sure. So the one way that I could think of, and I couldn't break the structure of my own thought patterns consciously because they're unconscious. Um, <laughs> so only, the only way- meditation and like a real good, deep understanding of yourself. Yeah. Is, and, I, yeah. and I tried the try like controlling med- your pulse or something yeah i tried the meditation thing and then i, I can't I, do that i, I just I've, I've really tried it and i i suck at it um i think it I takes think a long the, time to get in there and you have to have well, a long yeah. to do it and i'm i'm too impatient so Me i was too. like fuck it i'll just fucking nuke my brain with yeah, a, put some jurassic park on baby yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i was like no i'll just go and take an amazonian plant medicine and nuke my ego i think that's why happens. a lot of people are doing that because it's like this kind of from what I understand, it's like this quick way to do that deep dive, but on, without having to go into the meditative kind of situation. Because I think for us, our mm. brains are just so just running 
when I try and sit there and just do nothing, man, I have a lot of respect for people that can do that. I have a hard time with yeah. it myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, a, I'm, I'm firmly and totally and completely aware of the fact that I'm dying, you know, and that there's a finite amount of time left and that I must work hard and focus on it because I have so many things I'd like to do. So and that's a problem. But I don't think I've, I don't think I've, I think that's a healthy place to be at because I haven't reached that part yet. I think uh, my ego is still is still firmly in place and, and believes that or is blocking me from acknowledging uh the the fit the, the finitude of, of everything there's a there's a book i forget the author but uh it's a highly respected book in psychology and the theory is that the the entire personality system is predicated on its strategic desire to distract you from becoming aware that you're going to die <laughs> it's true yeah I and, see that. and the that and it's called it's called the book is called the, de- the denial of death oh, um it's a good book man. and and uh <laughs> it's about it's about constantly distracting yourself with these with these ephemeral temporal Sports, things. video games yes. porn uh, yes drugs and, yeah and and to and it takes a lot of well going into the belly of the, the whale and, and discovering that the, the deepest darkest parts of your unconscious you don't want to see and one of those unconscious things is an awareness that you came from nothing and you'll return to nothing and no one wants to confront that and that's beautiful kind of, thing though so beautiful well that's whether well, yeah and i got i got a very brief taste of that on my first attempt um not enough to, to, to turn quicksand into my own, you know, to put quicksand below my ego, but enough for me to, to definitely respect and appreciate that there's a lot more work to be done. That's great though. I love that you're able to acknowledge that and do self-awareness because there's nothing worse than if you would have told me, yeah, I did. It was awesome. Fucking killed it, bro. Yeah. You know, I'm like, wow, no, I don't think you did it. You know, <laughs> well, that was why I, that was I've never I done. I can't say anything, so I have no, I have no example have a, of it. So, well, they have a, they have a thing. In the, the way the ceremony structured is that you have a, without going into specific details, because it's all it goes in of, your butt, right? <laughs> it's a five, <laughs> yeah. it's a five minute plunge. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the faster well, it goes, the harder, like the deeper you go. I went to, a, I went to a, to a con man uh, version of the. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you just uh, get dildo fisted <laughs> for five yeah. minutes. So here's, so here's how it works. He makes you eat spinach. <laughs> You're like, what is yeah. this? This is, this is yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm paying paying for a session per day. So uh, yeah. no, but it's it's like a so you go there and you have you have what's called um, uh, what's it called integration integration. So in the evenings you do the ceremony. It takes it can last up to like eight hours. It goes until sunrise, um, and then the next day, once you've had a few hours sleep, like the, the the group of people that have done it together, you have like, and it sounds really cheesy, and I guess it is, but it's it's incredibly ceremonial and ritualistic in a way that I now really value the, the importance of ceremonies. That you then kind of go around each of you in, and you discuss with the group what strangers, what, what you're, yeah, yeah, with strangers on day one, but fuck me, Jesus, by day three. You're like you don't feel quite like strangers anymore. You find you find out stuff, and you find out stuff that activates unbelievable levels of empathy when you hear the fucking trauma that people have. Mm. That they that it was yeah. I mean, I, I won't talk even with anonymity. I won't talk about some of the stories that sure. people are talking it's about. Shit. Yeah. It's personal shit, yeah. you know. And and uh, but you especially on day one, you kind of like take the integration session with that cynical kind of what we're going to fucking have a group chat. Like, you know, it's that, it's that initial defense because you don't really want to do it. And then by day three, you, you kind of got to that point where the, the fucking three nights of this stuff is, has, and you're tired as well. You know, you're, you're kind of eroded and, uh, and that, that leads to some interesting like developments in terms of what you will and will not say. Mm. And, uh, 
and that can be very, very, but it, it, it's like the whole basis of, of confession and, and therapy. It's, it's, it's the ability to let out what's in, you know, yeah, that's tough it's, to cath- do sometimes. It's, 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 it's cathartic. And we live, especially now we live in a period where, you know, we live in a shaming culture where to even express, Oh, it's so unhealthy. Well, yeah, to even express that at some point. Well, I remember reading about that. Um, what was the thing that happened with uh, that actor from Taken? Oh, it's, it's um, pretty. Yeah, um, it's, it's very Neil, controversial. Nielsen? No, what's his name? Yeah, what's Liam his name? Neeson. Liam Neeson. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, what do you the do? Moral... I don't pay attention to this shit. So what did he do? So the, the the moral of it, I'll tell you what he said. He basically said that he likes burritos some... or something. <laughs> You freaking no, racist pig! No, 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 no. This was this was this was way more extreme. Okay, good. Uh, so, and and I can understand the inflammatory nature of it, but what I also couldn't understand was that he elected to say this as a confession of how much he realized it was wrong. So, at some point, he had, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here. So, I, I believe that he had a friend that was raped. Oh, sheesh. and. Uh, she was raped by somebody that wasn't white, and he his simple primitive brain became extremely tribalistic about wanting to hurt at and or kill somebody anybody from that other tribe, basically. Sure. And he was talking to, on a to telev- telephone or something like a private conversation. No, this was no, and this is the thing. He was saying this in an interview. Oh. So this was not some fucking smoke and daggers like, oh, we know what you said in private. He was saying, I feel deep shame that at one point in my life, in an emotional response to something, I had these feelings that I can now see were so toxic and sickening. Sure. And what a horrible thing for me as a human being to to, to realize that that potential was in myself. And he was saying it as a confession. And instead it was turned into... It was treated as if, ah, we caught you. you wow, that's bastard. not right. And 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 that's the, that's uh, what I took from that as a moral is that we we've now reached a point where people trying to express personal growth or regret over uh, you know uh, something a, pa- a past version of themselves is now is now scrutinized and is on now the table scru- as if it is, is you now. Exactly. Uh, not only as not only as if it is you now, but as if you did in fact perpetrate the things you were thinking about. Yeah. So, and it's like, well, well wait a minute. Like, what? How can any human being uh, aspire to growth if they if if the act of acknowledging weakness in their own personality cannot be accessed? Accessed. You know, it's like yeah. I don't know. Like, and I'm sure that this even this conversation will probably make a lot of people inflame. Uh, it sure. will inflame a lot of people and it's, turn it off and, then don't listen to it there's a million other fu- things you can listen to you know? well exactly and it's my advice and it scares me that that like uh, yeah i mean i posted some some very uh I, I posted an article on facebook a few weeks ago that got the strangest responses <laughs> i don't use facebook anymore oh man it, it got it was so strange from people that i really um this is the thing i've learned i don't know if this would work help you at all but it's like I wouldn't go out on the street and then ask a stranger for opinions about things. I just wouldn't. It's not my nature. Maybe the ayahuasca thing would help because you're in a cycle of experience with people that are actually going through something very interesting with you. So that scenario is very unique. But like I wouldn't say the same thing. I I treat the internet as if I'm on the street. So Mm somebody is like talking shit to me or like being rude or they don't use complete sentences. I'm like, fuck off, you know, like get out of here. (laughs) So I just, I don't know. I don't value their 
their presence on my experience. And so I just kind of remove, remove it. People know that about me. I think by now I just don't tolerate it. So it's just like, you know, be cordial, be polite, have a, have a presence as if you're in my physical space. Yeah, That's how you I, exist. You know, are I, people like yeah. dropping critiques? And I'm like, well, I didn't ask for a critique from you. And I don't know. And I look at your art and it's like, you shouldn't even be giving me a critique. You know, I don't get this. So it's like, I would, I, and I love critiques from people that I, I'm asking them from because I know that they're going to help me make me better. But like unsolicited critiques online, it's like, oh, what? Well, yeah, that's with, annoying. With that's the, just me, though. Yeah, I've kind of. I think what scares me the most isn't necessarily the content of what people were saying. It was, it was more the the the, the broader framework within which the conversation was happening, and it wasn't a conversation because I wasn't responding really. But it was it was more that. Uh, it was more the degree to at one point somebody actually said that the 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 person that was speaking in the article should not be allowed to have a platform to speak <laughs> and and yeah. and it shouldn't and, and I was and, and actually the, the, they mentioned that I shouldn't be share I shouldn't be sharing it even because it and, shamed you too huh? and and I was like I was like you realize that you've jumped to straight into the tyrannical state of we should kill free speech because I don't, I don't want to hear different opinions. Yeah. It's, you don't, have, it's easy. You just don't listen to her to watch it. If you don't have a, if you don't I, want it, I know, don't, I, don't tell people no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You should never de-platform anybody. Even if they're talking horrible stuff, you just go like, well, yeah, that's and your it, reality, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know this is kind of, we've drifted into an inflammatory subject and I, I try to say this is what this, this is actually podcasts are actually the perfect place to do that. I think, that's true. That's Not true, Twitter. Actually. Twitter's no, wrong. That's that's Facebook true. is wrong. I think this is a more dynamic flow. And even if we're opposing each other to give each other like the, the presence of, of, of opposing views, I think it's good because this is actually a dynamic place to do such a thing. I think that's what makes Joe Rogan's podcast, for example, so successful because he has opposing views and he has interesting people on there that have interesting views on things. And um, and they're controversial. And I think they're important mm. to talk about because that's how we evolve, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we're at a place where we're not evolving as fast as we should with given the tools that we have. We're regressing at a yeah. re- remarkable rate. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I'm not. So, you know, and, and I'm not yeah. the kind of person that's going to go online and, and rant and rave like, you, you know, y'all need to stop eating meat and this and that. I'm like, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change my world by living the world at the level that I want to and, and, and just live and shine at the level that I want to and be the best that I can and share that with people because that's more influential and in giving than anything else I think that I could ever do. Yeah. Nobody's going to listen to me if I'm ranting and raving. And if they do, I feel sad for them because they shouldn't listen to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I guess I guess the, my major concern is uh, that there are plenty of people that will rant and rave who will have the the prerequisite amount of of street smarts and charisma to 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 move enough people to make a damaging effect oh you yeah know? you see it that donald trump's a president i mean there's there's example examples of this everywhere all over the place you know and mm-hmm. it's a bummer i'm just in my no, mind no, you're, no you're right you're right i'm just i'm yeah i'm just trying to it's sad it's a bummer trying, trying to reconcile the the uh whether whether it's it's that internal thing of like whether more more centric people should be speaking more because even now even to offer any kind of central position between two two camps makes either camp immediately assume that you are polarized in the opposite direction to them it's like the amount of people that so quickly jump to 
well, actually, I've got a central opinion. Well, then you're a Nazi. <laughs> so, well, yeah, and it's like, oh, come on, you know. It's, it, so where, it's, did, where did centrism go, you know? It's like, where did reason go? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, well, let's not end on a sour note. No, no, uh, no. I mean, at, at the same time, too, and I don't think this is, a, in my mind, I mean, I'm sorry if it's making you uncomfortable. I don't think so either, and I think it's really important. That's why I value that like, having, this is why I do these podcasts, not to ask you about, what brush you use and all that kind of stuff. It's like the deeper mm-hmm. conversations because these need to be having, they need, these need to be happening. You know, I think it's important to have that because, um, and I don't think we're pushing any kind of agenda. I don't think we've ever pointed out any kind of, we're not no, on any team. True. It's just more that's or less true. like opening your mind to thought. I think I've just lost, to have thought, you know, I've just lost to a certain degree. I've lost faith totally in, in the, in the way that people respond to things that are so unoffensive and so, easy to be discussed totally well i think that's the thing is when you throw it out there to strangers you got to accept that somebody out there is going to respond wrongly to it without your intention i think for me it's like i'll just drop it and leave it alone and like whatever you know but if i feel Mm -hmm. strongly about something this is the equivalent that i do now i barely ever use twitter i think twitter is a failed attempt instagram all these things are just they're they're design mechanisms to keep your time so they could sell you stuff so i'm very hyper aware of how the mechanism works I still use it and I still enjoy it because it's a place where I go, Oh, this is cool. And I talk to friends and I share stuff. It's, it's not that bad. That's how I look at it and use it. But like today or yesterday, and I even shared it with you as I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast with uh, Neville uh, Ravin, mm. Ravin Cannon. Yeah. I need to listen to that. Ooh, it's such a good episode. And so the way I shared it, it was like to anybody that wants to know, I put it on my stories. I just said, this is a great episode. I didn't say listen to this. I didn't say do that now or I'm going to kill you or anything like that. It's like, yeah. and I think the people that um, I align with as like, um, I, I don't, I don't would never say fans because I think that's weird, but they're, they're my friends and people that I align with. They're my tribe, I guess. Mm. They'll see that and hopefully they'll listen to it and enjoy it and get something out of it and better, brighten their day, give them some, some ammo and stuff. So it's like, I just, I think a lot of it's are we're so new to the mechanism of the internet. Mm, and yeah, we're, yeah. we're so unevolved in, in, in regards to the mechanisms in which we, we, we communicate and use these devices. Mm. And I think if we get a really big, broad look at it, it's like we, we allow ourselves to be so emotionally controlled by it. And a lot of the times the people that are making the most noise are just these little minorities. Cause you yeah, know, when you're on the yeah. street and you're, you're existing with people. I mean, how often do you run into somebody as, as crazy as you see on Twitter or something? It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's very, it's, very, it's very true. Most people are good, man. People, most people out in life are just good people. They love, they want to be loved. They want to communicate. They're just good people. Mm. And some of them are having a bad day and good people have bad days. And it's just, it's kind of, that's just my evolved experience with it. And I've kind of just learned to kind of deal with it as it is. But yeah, I mean, I use, I've, I've fallen down that trap many times where I'm like, what, what? And then it just gets worse and worse. And even had a little Twitter thing recently. And it's just like, what the heck? But I'm just like, ah. Oh. I'm turning this off. I delete it from my phone. I turn it off. I don't look at it for a week. I'm like, it's just toxic. I don't want this mm. in my space. And it, it's just bad. But okay, let's end on a high note, okay? So let's think about let's think about a good high note. Let's I always like to and when I close these things out, I love to talk about the future. What the future holds for you, what you're thinking about the future, what you know, you just went through ayahuasca, you've worked on two freaking massive films, you've always obviously worked on many things in between. So where where are you going? You're traveling a lot. What's the future hold for you? So I think, I think that uh, for the first time in my life, instead of trying to, to project or control what's going to happen in the future, I'm kind of trying to open it up to, to more chaos. Mm. So one of the things that I'm doing is that I'm accepting invitations to talk, uh, especially at events that are outside of um, 
of film and games. So I've been getting invitations for, for more broader events, events that are kind of, well, not, not, not like Ted, but similar vein that it's just about random subjects that are interesting. Yeah. Ned, Ned talks. Ned, Ned. So <laughs> well, what's, what's been fun about it and what I've, and this is one of the reasons that I'm here and one of the reasons that I'm um, going to this place on Monday, which may or may not be like SpaceX is, <laughs> is, and one of the reasons that if people are, people are familiar with, um, my, like my lectures and they, they see that I'm actually repeating a lot of the same subject in some of the new lectures on YouTube Yeah, is because it's no longer designed for the audience that it was designed for two years ago. So it's like, it's a, it's a new kind of much more non film based like audience. And what I'm finding fascinating about it is how much it's resonating with people and that the, the invitations are accelerating to go and talk at events that have nothing yeah. to do with film. And, and it's, I'm beginning to think that maybe the end result of it is, is, is something that I don't have a plan for. Good. You know? So, and that, I, th- I think that's the plan is kind of trying to uh, embrace uncertainty a little bit and see what comes from it. Usually I'm like, Oh, put a list and make it lay and blah, blah, blah. You know, but I, you're telling me, I'm like, it sounds perfect. <laughs> well, I think, I think yeah, I've been, I've been doing the list the list thing since I was like 17 and it's worked out well, but it's, it's a strategy that's exhausted itself. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful that you've evolved past it because there is a moment where I think the reason why we would use list is because we had a lack of discipline and control. And then when you have a, when you have an ultimate list, then you live it so well that you become a list within yourself because you understand what you need to get done and understand priorities and time management, all that stuff. Once you have that mechanism, yeah, you can live, yeah. you can simply exist within it and you know when you're doing it right or not, you know? Yeah. If another thing about, slacking, another thing like, about oh, a list so. is that once you, you get to a point where the list itself is, is habitual Yes, and you, and you realize that the list that even if you try and make an original list, it's still, it's still uh, limited by your experience and that experience is largely based on your previous lists. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's like, well, you're never going to develop if, if you're in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, like a, a self, self-sustaining cycle. Totally. Damn. I love it. There we go. I think that's good. <laughs> Dude, Mike, yeah. thank you so much, man. Um, it's, it's really awesome. I love talking with you. I just love the way the conversations go. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all that you do for the community, all that you do for yourself selfishly. I think I love it. And it's really great to see, you know, your evolution with all this stuff and, I'm excited to see where all this stuff goes and takes you because it sounds like you're on this really beautiful serendipitous journey that's going to take you to this next stage. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, I really, really, we should do this more often. I'll, yes. I'll, have, to, I'll have to come down and say hello in, uh, in San Diego. Please, anytime. You're always welcome. Anytime you want to come on. And I think um, this is this was an intentional for us to do this anyways, but I think we had reached out to our audience and fan base and they you were hugely highly recommended. So this is great. So big thanks to everybody that participated in making this possible. So hope yeah. this wasn't disappointing. <laughs> no, man, I, I think this is a great conversation. I love this. I, this, these are my favorite kind of episodes. So yeah. Awesome. Have an amazing meetings uh, while you're here in LA and thank you again so much for your time and we'll see you on the other side. All right. There you have it. Everyone big thank yous to Mike for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You know the drill. You can go and find all the show notes for this week's episode, which there's a ton of them. You can find them at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 209. Um, yeah, this is awesome. I'm so, I just love these episodes. I'm so thankful that Mike came on. Thank you again, Mike. Go out there. Be powerful. Be prolific. Peace out, everyone.